0: Hello welcome to T Hanks for the Memories, I am your host Darren, and today we're going to be t- finally discussing Cloud Atlas, um, uh, you know, one of the films that I saw at the cinema uh, in this run of, uh, of eight films uh, that I managed to see of Toms at the cinema, uh, going from Toy Story 3 through to Bridge of Spies, um, so I think this is the halfway point, um, and a film that since I saw at the cinema I have not watched again until today. Um, It was released in America uh, on the 26th of October 2012, but I didn't get to see it until the 2nd of March 2013. I have a feeling it was basically at my cinema for one week. So I think I went and saw it on the Saturday because I knew it was a long film. There was no way I was going to be seeing this film at like 8 o'clock at night. Um, It turned out to be a box office flop, probably why it took five months to get from America over to here. It's very rare that successful films take that long. Um, Tom, of course, is getting top billing. I think he's sharing it with Halle Berry on most of the posters. Um, although, obviously, he is the selling point, his face. Once again, we return to the tradition of having Tom's big face on the posters, so everybody knows who's in it. Uh, but there were some of those posters that featured all of the characters, because there are a lot of characters in this film. Um, and joining me to talk about today, I have both returning guests. First, we have Kelly Hansen. Hello, Kelly. Hello. And we have Leandra Lynn. Hello, Leandra.
1: Hello, hello. Um,
0: now, uh, I think, Leandra, you, you're returning from... I think You Do, I think, was that the last episode that you were on? Yeah, the last one remember. was
1: That Thing You Do.
0: Yeah, uh, and Kelly is returning from Polar Express, uh, which I think she gave approval to, although I don't think yeah. I was on board with that particular opinion. Um, uh,
2: no, yeah. you remember
3: incorrectly. <laughs> oh, no, you gave it...
0: I think it was Zach who was uh, defending it, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: I've had a few films since there where people have been very much giving T-hanks to stuff where I've been saying no T-hanks. So, uh, yeah. And we'll see how that turns out on this film today. Um, It's an interesting film because, obviously, you have the Wachowskis uh, directing alongside Tom Tikwa, I think is how you say his name. Um, And I was thinking to myself, you know, I I knew Tom Tikwa from um perfume um which was like the which i think came up uh, like it came out like uh what 2006 so it was it was quite, it was a few years before this um and that was i was i was like well, i'm sure that was like the the kind of the last big film he did but it turns out he did a film in 2009 called the international uh starring Clive Owen and um Naomi Watts uh and i saw that at the cinema um, can't say I was particularly impressed with it, can't even really remember what the, the plot was about, something to do with spies. Um, and then later I had actually seen Run Lola Run, which I think is obviously the, you know, that's where he made his name, uh, is effectively with the, you know, this kind of low budget. Uh, and again, that's a, that's a film that, uh, you know, uh, like this one, it has like a small piece of story that is told from different perspectives. Um, I mean this is kind of the same as that but you know, it is kind of a number of different segments apparently um, the Wachowskis were responsible for the first segment and um, the last two which are effectively the ones set in the future um, and then the kind of the middle three which are kind of set between 1936 and 2012 were handled by uh, Tikwa um, so he kind of directed those uh, the plan apparently was to direct them all like, kind of in order, so have the Wachowskis do their bit and then hand off all the actors to uh, Tikwa so he could do his part, and then you know they would finish it with the Wachowskis. Uh, but Halliberry uh, broke her foot and that completely messed up the shooting schedule, and so, <laughs> so they had to kind of scramble and rearrange everything and shoot stuff in different order. Um, and apparently, that caused some monetary issues. Uh, apparently, some of the because this is uh, although it's kind of distributed by Warner Brothers, it was mostly funded. By uh, a number of independent studios, the logos of which, of course, appear at the beginning. And part of that was also the Wachowskis' money. They put about seven million of their own money into this film to complete. Uh, I think it's for the completion bond, so that it, you know the film definitely gets made, basically. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, obviously, uh, much like any human, you know, in the 20th century, I enjoyed The Matrix, saw that the similar couple of times, saw it. Um, a couple of years ago when it got re-released for the 20th anniversaries, you know, so I've seen that like three times at cinema. cinema. Uh, saw the second and third Matrix films at the cinema, uh, did not like them. Uh, saw Speed Racer at the cinema, it gave me a headache. Um, I, I mean, you know, I've supported the Wachowskis as much as I humanly possibly could uh, in terms of the work that they've done, and you know, I really, at this point, I only like Bound in the Matrix. I think everything else after that I'm kind of They've, you know, there's stuff to enjoy there, but it's a bit iffy. So, I don't know how, uh, like, what your experience of the Waikowskis or Tickwood were coming into this film. Um, I'm going to say, Kelly, uh, you know, what was your history with these filmmakers?
2: Um, so, they are uh, obviously the Matrix movies, and I have seen all of them except the Animatrix. Um, I, obviously, the original Matrix is a wonderful movie. Um, I actually really liked the. One that just came out, which is,
0: was it Resurrection? Yes,
2: Resurrection. Yeah. Sorry, I'm confused this Revolution. Anyway.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, the other sequels I found to be garbage. I've heard the Animatrix is good, but I have not seen it. What else have, have the Wladikowski done? Let me, I feel like I'm forgetting something that I have seen.
0: Uh, well, I, I, well, Speed Racer was 2008. Uh, they. I have not seen that. Yeah, they produced. Um, uh, v for Vendetta. Oh, um, uh, not a fan.
2: <laughs> yeah. um, but I was a fan when it came out when I was 12, so... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Kelly, <laughs> were you I hardcore?
0: Like um, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, so uh, well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I did see the anim- Animatrix when it came out, because uh, it was on TV, and obviously it was you know the year that the sequels were coming out. It was the year of the Matrix. Turned out to be the year of the Return of the King, so... Uh, or the third Harry Potter film. Whatever, was it, whatever else Warner Bros. were putting out, it wasn't the year of the Matrix. Uh, but yeah, no, Speed Racer was what they directly did after the Matrix sequels, uh, directly before this. That was the last film they'd done before Cloud Atlas. And then obviously after this, they did Jupiter Ascending. Again, I saw that at the, at the cinema. It's hot garbage. Um, Resurrections, I mean, yeah, I think it's okay. I'm not, but, you know, i I, I like... I don't think they've they've done anything that ever has managed to match uh, either the Matrix or Bound. Bound is a wonderful film if you've seen Bound. Um, I haven't.
2: I've have been meaning to. I mean, I was. It's,
0: it's gay,
2: right? Bound. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Am Yeah, there's in it. Yeah, there's there's at least uh, there's like I would say like there's a three minute sequence roughly an hour and ten minutes in, that is about as gay as it's going to get. Um, Kelly,
1: I love that you and I have a similar sort of um, litmus test for will we watch the film. Like, hey, is it gay? (laughs) (laughs) And if it is, then like, yeah, I'll probably watch it.
2: Specifically, a friend of mine uh, made like a a list last June uh, for me of like kind of more alternative movies to
0: watch during Pride Month, and I was trying to remember, and
2: that was one that was on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to... very, like, film Twitter. I, I mean, I don't want to spoil um, the plot in
0: any way, but yeah, it's it's extremely gay. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> More than <laughs> once in my notes, I I did type Sexsmith when I meant to type yeah, sex Yeah, because that's also, like,
2: a name that exists. Yeah. Anyway, but, but yeah. Sexsmith. Sixsmith and the other guy's name I don't remember. Probisher sure. The first
1: scene
2: with them, I was like, oh, it's gay. And Dad yeah. was making fun of
3: me. <laughs> <My> <laughs> had the same reaction. Yeah
2: I, yeah, I had a
1: very similar reaction where I was like, I'm I'm not sure how into. Oh, okay. There's some gay. I can I, I can find my love <laughs> in this.
0: I I mean I was going to say Leandro. Like obviously I mean I'm, I I don't know how much of the previous work you'd seen by the Wachowskis or Tom Tikwa. I mean. You know, Run, out Run was like a big hit for a reason. You know, it's a fun kind of short indie film. It's not. It's only like, I don't know, 80 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> so, I like that. You know, yeah. Um, so I don't know what else you've seen by the Wachowskis.
1: I've seen all of the Matrix stuff. I saw Jupiter ascending or rising or to the left to the left. <laughs> um, uh, Jupiter did something there. Um, it was very forgettable, thankfully. Um, but, yeah, yeah I, I don't typically enjoy their work Um, which is not to say that uh, that I didn't love the matrix Um, I did not love uh, this most recent matrix Um, I watched it a couple of times and I I thought that it was a little weak and I think that's generally what I think of their direction in general
0: yeah It's interesting for Tikwa because the next film he does is literally another Tom Hanks film. It's a hologram for the king, (laughs) which I'll be covering in like five or six movies time. Um, So, but I mean, I've, you know, I've heard good things about perfume. I've just never seen it. You know, that was based on a a novel as well. Uh, In fact, I think perfume, the novel was meant to be kind of unfilmable as this novel was, you know, regarded as unfilmable Uh, because, you know, it's about a guy who, um, I don't know, he murders people and he knows how things smell or something. And I think it's easy to, on the page to understand that on screen. It's a bit kind of cheesy to have someone sniffing around all the time. Um, but yeah, so and obviously they worked together on sense as well, um, which I watched the first... I, th- I think there was like two series and then there was like a finale thing, wasn't there, where they wrapped it up because they kind of cancelled it. I watched the first two series. I didn't watch whatever wrapped it up, so I've still got that to watch. I'm sure I'll watch it at some point. I, you know, sense was really good. I really enjoyed it. Obviously there are a couple of people that are in this that were also in 8 So, you know, obviously liked working with the Wachowskis. Um, but, yeah, the only other thing the Wachowskis have done, which which is just, like, the weirdest thing in the world, is the there was a remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, <laughs> which came out in 2007, just called The Invasion. Because, of course, like, seven years earlier, or ten years earlier, I can't remember when it was, but I think Abel Ferrara did a version which was just called Body Snatchers. Um, so they couldn't call it that. So, you so put they had to a different though. part. Yeah, yeah. But this is it. You just need a film called Of, and then you've got you know the whole um, the whole thing. Um, yeah. So the invasion. It was directed by James Bateek, who did um, V for Vendetta, and who was a second unit director for the Matrix trilogy. I think he's like an Australian guy. He like so you know they worked together. But that thing like uh, originally it was directed by a guy called um, Oliver Hirsch Hirsch. Beigel, I think, is how you who directed Downfall, which everybody knows from that scene where Hitler's yelling at people, and obviously, you know, people put different voices on him. Um, But he did a film in 2001 called Das Experiment, which was about the Stanford Prison Experiment. Uh, Was a German film. I saw it at the cinema. Uh, I thought it was really good. So obviously, when you know. Uh, Downfall was really good. So when they announced the invasion, you know, produced by the Wachowskis and Joel Silver, who, of course, is a terrible human being, um, you know, starring Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig, (laughs) I was like, okay, this sounds interesting. Uh, Turns out it's literally the world's most boring film. Like, just... uh, Nothing happened. Considering how good, like, the original... The original's a bit cheesy. The 1956. But the 1978 remake, obviously everybody knows from the final shot of somebody pointing with their mouth open. Um the 1978 remake is great so, you know, and they're all kind of based on a, you know, a novel from many, many years ago, but like, you know the central premise is, is always interesting, but they managed to make it really, really, really boring um, and you know, the, the fact that they basically took, you know, Oliver Hirschbergel off the film and then had James Mateen come in to direct a bunch of scenes that they wrote uh, yeah, just a mess really, um, you know and, and just like and it's just so weird because it's like Daniel Craig, like, literally, like he started filming it before he did Bond and then it didn't come out for like a couple of years. <laughs> um, and so then after that, he was James Bond. So you'd think there was something to sell it on, but you know, in the end, it just turned out to be really, really boring. And a huge box office slop. made absolutely no money, uh, much like this film. Uh, which, um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the cast in this is kind of amazing. Um, you know, there are a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of like cast members, like, well, the way it's the way it's structured, you know, there are obviously some people who are in every plotline, and then there are a couple of people who kind of drop out for one or two of the stories. So even though the main characters are played by, like, Jim Sturgis and Ben Wishar, Halle Berry, Jim Broadman, Duna Bay, and of course, above the title, Tom Hanks, we've also got Hugh Grant and Hugo Weaving, who are, like, in every single you know, story as well. Um and Duna Bay is only in kind of half the film. Um which you know, but she has such a prominent role in the kind of the you know, the first of the futuristic ones, uh, that you kind of see her more of a main character than say Hugh Grant or Hugo Weaving Um Hugh Grant of course like really embracing his his bastard in this. Like literally every one of his characters is a complete bastard to everybody. And like, there's, and the same with Hugo Weaving. Both of them are just playing evil bastards throughout history. Um, and I thought that was kind of an interesting choice, particularly for Hugh Grant. I mean, I like Hugh Grant as an actor because he, like, you know, obviously he had that whole kind of like rom-com phase. But like in the last kind of like I don't know, decade or whatever, he's just decided to be like, I'm just gonna do whatever the hell I like. And sometimes that ends up with him, you know, playing 20 different roles in Paddington Two. And sometimes it ends up with him being, like, six different villains in this film. Uh, You know, so he's, like, really kind of playing... Like, playing against type a little bit. And, like, you expect him to be, like, the reasonable person in each of these stories. And then he ends up being, like, in most cases, like, the most evil person that's in any of them.
2: Yeah, it's... I kind of... I see him as always being the, like, smarmy asshole in rom-coms, too. Yeah. Oh, wait, no. I always forget that you're supposed to like him (laughs) in Love Actually... It, he's like objectively a horrible person abusing his power, um, but um it, at least in Bridget Jones, he is the villain. yeah, Spoiler for Bridget Jones. Yeah although
0: I, again, like Bridget Jones is kind of the earliest example of him taking his persona and kind of deliberately playing against it, um you know, because you know, traditionally yeah. you would have thought he would have played the, the you know the the Darcy role, but you know. I mean, with that they went for the meta casting. You know, they really went, you know, inside baseball on that one. Um, I should also say, yeah. like James Darcy, Keith David, Susan Sarandon, they also turn up. Again, they're not their own. Like maybe four out of the six stories, each of them, they're not really in every single story. Um, mm. And uh, there's a couple of other like smaller actors who appear in. I think pretty much everybody's in the the very far future story, uh, where we talk about the true true. Um... But, you know, the stories before that, most, it's you know, it's a mix and match of, of which characters. And, the, you know, there's an interesting character actor called Robert Fife who kind of, he appears in the first story, like, just as, like, a guy on the ship. Um, but then in the later story, he plays Mr. Meeks, who at first you think is not that much of a pivotal character, and then he turns out to be quite important <laughs> towards the end of the story. So, you know, there's some actors where they do that where, you know, the same with... Um, Uh, I think it's Zhuzun is how you say her name where she is, you know, Yuna 939 who's like the rebellious uh, replicant, I mean mean, they've got a different word but replicant is the first thing that comes to my head Um, you know, and then she also appears in the 1973 one but just like kind of briefly, so you know there are a few kind of minor characters that do that uh, as the story goes on Um, but yeah, uh, I mean like I said, made absolutely no money Uh, although apparently it did get like a 10 minute standing ovation when it premiered at TIFF um, and I don't know if people were just applauding because they could finally stand up after three hours. Um, I but, stretch my legs. <laughs> yeah, maybe they were just like, "Yes, finally, it's over." Uh, but yeah, as we go through it, we can obviously talk a lot more about like you know what each of the different actors are doing in each period because uh, you know really you know the main like each of the main characters do just get they get one kind of main role and then they have like many supporting roles. Uh, you know, in in particular as an example, you know, Tom Hanks in the Korean part is playing a version of Jim Broadbent's character from the 2012 story and he only ever appears like on a TV screen, he only ever really says one line. Um and that's that's like his entire role in it. So that's kind of basically a cameo in that part. But obviously in a lot of the other you know parts he, he kind of appears in slightly more significant roles. So then let us jump into the film. Uh we start with a kind of five minute prologue where we're introduced to the kind of main character of each part starting with zachary uh who is in the year 2321 and is talking in a language that i will describe as extremely annoying um and Uh i mean i i mean in book form you know i guess this works but when you actually have to have an actor sitting there saying these words and talking in this weird kind of language um that's like Uh Yes?
2: Uh, I was just going to say, I have no idea. I mean, I always have subtitles on, but I literally don't know <laughs> how anybody could have understood this without subtitles, because not only are they mumbling and speaking in an, a fake, made-up accent, but they're also saying made-up words so you don't even have, like, the English language for context. I was like, I don't think it's just me. Like, this would be,
1: like, complete gibberish to anybody, right? Well, you saw it in the cinema. Yeah, I did,
0: yeah. Did... It, were you able to understand what the, <laughs> fuck you, what, what the hell are you saying? Uh, no. Uh, well, I would say this. I'll, I will say, for the first, I don't know, for the first like 30 seconds or something when it's just Tom Hanks talking in this weird, made-up language. Uh, and we should say, obviously, I saw it at the cinema. Neither of you saw it until... I said, let's do it on this podcast. Yes, yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and I mean, like, as the film goes on, I think it gets a lot easier to understand what he's talking about because you you see actions and you get context, and you know the like they keep using these phrases like the true true and stuff like that, and like a vet, like what he's talking about is how people tell each other stories. That's that's basically what he's saying, and, and how I, stories are important. I and, I very much know, th- uh,
1: felt like this was. Like listening to Beowulf in the original like language, <laughs> I'm like, oh god, am I supposed to be paying attention to this? Is this just yes. flavor? I can't tell.
2: I, I just I don't know why they made the choice, cause I really feel like they were not enunciating the this made up dialect either. Like uh, maybe it's just because I don't hear well, but to me everything sounds like Sim <laughs> <Same> talk. <laughs> Yeah.
0: yeah. Really? Yeah. It is. I mean, it is close to simlish in some parts. Yes. Uh, when he, particularly when he talks about the Fangy Devil's eyes, and you're like, what is he talking about? What's going on here? And and you know, uh, there is a point where, you, I mean, you probably don't you don't know whether or not Zachary is imagining Hugo Weaving or Hugo Weaving is like an actual part of the tribe that's being led by Hugh Grant. It you know it takes a takes a couple of segments before you realize it's kind of it's just his fears you know manifested as Hugo weaving in a lot of weird makeup Um, you know so uh, but but
2: Hugo weaving as Johnny Depp's
1: Mad Hatter (laughs) (laughs) Hugo (laughs) weaving as a goth leprechaun
0: yeah I mean yeah he it feels like he's a couple of steps away from just being a Babadook basically. Um which would make this very, gay
1: culture. True. And yet. well, yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah. Um uh, we meet Adam Ewing, uh, who is all the way back in um uh, eighteen forty nine, played by everyone's favourite Cockney, Jim Sturgis. Um best known I think for um uh, Across the Universe, um, where he played the kind of the main character, which you know came out a few years before this. Um, he's been on a lot of stuff since, but uh, between him, Ben Wishar, and James Darcy, they are really pushing the limits of people being able to recognize different winsome Englishmen. Um, and, you know, they start with him, but they quickly kind of turn into. We've, we start to find out that Halle Berry, as Louisa Ray, is entering San Francisco in 1973. Um, and that jumps us to timothy cavendish played by jim broadbent probably my favorite part of the film is all the stuff that happens with jim broadbent in this in this particular thing and he obviously goes extremely meta and makes a joke about how um people shouldn't use flashbacks and flash forwards and how he hates those um the type like the where he where timothy cavendish is sitting we'll find out later on is the end of his story and that is also true of Zachary. It's the like where he's narrating from. is He's an old man, and it's the end of the, the like the, of his story where he's narrating from. Um, for the other characters, you, we're meeting them at the start of their story. Um, in some cases, although um, not Robert Frobisher. And obviously, before we talk about this, we should say to listeners: obviously, there's a lot of stuff in particular with his storyline, involving suicide. Particularly as he starts off narrating his own suicide note. Um, Now, we don't get to see... that Like, he's sitting in a bath, and, you know, he's obviously... It's before the act is taking place. So, although he's narrating the suicide note, we don't know if this is actually going to happen in the film, like, if he actually is going to kill himself. Um, And then we also see, in the future, Sonmi 451, which I'm not going to call her that every single time. I will stick with just calling her Sonmi. Um... Is being interrogated by the archivist. Played by, and I feel this is the moment we have to discuss it, James Darcy as a Korean. James Darcy in Yellowface. And. The first of many Yellowfaces.
2: It is, and also, I, I was over halfway through the movie when I made a comment that caused Brad to realize that i did not understand that this was the yellow face even i went into this movie knowing there would be yellow face but it was so poorly executed in addition to being offensive that i thought that they were just made to look freakish for some unknown reason and i commented on some guy being i commented on some guy being white and Brad was like well to be fair he's supposed to be asian i was like oh good god (laughs) (laughs) this is so
0: bad yeah I think so, yellow face which they will even apply to Keith David uh, when we eventually meet him in that storyline uh, which is kind of insane that they did that to his eyes and I'm like, w- it re- like could he not just be a black guy who's in Korea could that just not be a thing that happens <laughs> like
2: I know especially <laughs> The future too like, yeah oh
0: well I, I, I mean as we go through these stories you know we could talk more about the kind of tropes that they hit but yeah this this kind of hits the the trope of the future is always asian um you know blade runner asian people you know that's the future you know akira obviously set in tokyo but still you know the kind of the i would think the place where most people these days get their kind of idea of like science fiction future which is always somewhere in Asia, like, we go to the future and all of a sudden we're in Asia for some reason um, I, Um you know, I don't know if it's a bad thing, but like, in this particular case it did kind of stick out, because you had Jim Sturgis and you had Jim Broadbent and oh you had Hugh Grant and Hugo Weaving, all in Yellowface, and it's kind of insane you also, um, I want to
1: say it was Susan Sarandon, that was also in Yellowface as the old doctor or surgeon in that? Oh, is she supposed to be age?
0: She. You're thinking about Ovid, the character of Ovid, who is, like, the doctor who takes the thing off, yeah, yeah. off Sonmi's neck. Yeah, that's Halle Berry. Oh,
1: it's ha- oh, that's even worse.
3: That's. Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. So,
3: <laughs> yeah, so I mean... At being yeah, awful. Yeah,
0: but... So me telling like talking to the archivist is where we finish a very brief introduction to each of these storylines before we have the titles and then um you know we'll concentrate first on the story that's in 1849 which is about uh, Adam Ewing um uh, who is we find that we start off meeting him where he's at dinner with uh, Reverend Horrocks that he, who is his father-in-law um played by Hugh Grant um and they're also in the company of uh, Doctor Henry Goose, played by Tom Hanks, um, and Keith David is a slave. He's well, you know, he's household, so he's like serving them, uh, serving them food. Um, and uh, the mother-in-law is played by Susan Sarandon in this. And I don't think we see her until very, very late. I don't think we see her until the end of the story. But Duna Bay will be playing Tilda Ewing um, again. She, her face will be altered so she is less Asian and she's I'm assuming supposed to be white. Um
1: I thought that they were of... trying to make her look like half black, maybe.
0: I don't know. Yeah, but she doesn't look she doesn't look like how she does normally. That's I mean, obviously when we get to the San Francisco, you know, nineteen seventy three part we'll have a completely different discussion about what Duna Bay looks like in that and the role that she plays there. But yeah, it I, I think they're try I mean, she's meant to be the the you know, the child of um, you know Susan Sarandon and, and Hugh Grant. So I, I'm not. I don't. I think they're meant to be trying to make her as white as possible uh, when we do eventually meet her. Well, but, they failed. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Adam Adam Ewing is extremely wealthy. He has a uh, a, a box that is full of money, um, and he's going on. He, well, he's going on a, a voyage. And, uh, while on that voyage, uh, Dr. Henry Goose will be treating him for an ailment that he has, um, which is how it is set up. Um, and, uh, we, I it's, it's interesting because we also get, uh, David Gyasi playing, uh, Watwa, I think is how you say his name. Um, and he, we meet him when he's being whipped on a post and we kind of like, we hear the noise and then we kind of go around and we see him. Again, I can't remember when 12 Years a Slave came out, but I think it was either the year before this or the year after it. It was close to this coming out. And obviously also we had Django Unchained, where also people were getting whipped. Um, And I don't know why, but for some reason in the zeitgeist, all of a sudden everybody wanted to put slaves in their films and have a discussion about slavery in 2012. Um, Yeah. And so, I mean, like, I don't know how, like, the, the kind of, the setup is kind of, I don't know, almost comical about this like rich guy going to take like a cruise and having like a, an ailment that he doesn't really kind of understand where it is um so I don't know how you feel about like I mean I will say this about Jim Sturgis. obviously you know later on there's some questionable choices as to what roles he's playing um but I think he's really good as like the character of Adam Ewing um you know and obviously he's, he's shown as being someone who is like the crux of this story is the fact that he's sympathetic to the freeing of the slaves um and obviously he's not happy with the treatment of this particular this particular person who will then stow away on the ship. Um, and, you know, we'll find out there's an ulterior motive for Tom Hanks being there. This is obviously the most evil of the Tom Hanks characters that are in the film. Um, you know, because obviously he's a Doctor Who. We find out... It takes a while for the film to kind of get there. Um, and it's only really revealed through Frobisher reading about this um, story, which, you know, Frobisher will be in the next segment. Um... Uh, that he's basically being poisoned by Tom Hanks uh, so that Tom Hanks can get his money. Um, yeah, so I mean... How...
2: Did anybody else figure that out, like, instantly? I... In the first scene where we see the doctor?
1: I for sure did.
2: I thought I, I kind of thought we were supposed to know it, and then when the movie treated it as a reveal, I was like,
3: "You insult me." <laughs> 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 yeah,
0: I mean, I, I personally, when I saw it at the cinema, I remember thinking immediately, "Oh, he's poisoning him." Like that's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that's. I, I mean, I, I think
2: they telegraphed it pretty hard. Like I thought we were supposed to. Know, I mean, they almost put like they practically put like ominous, foreboding music when he first gives them that dose of. I guess poison, yeah,
0: so whatever. Yeah, I I mean, I, like, again, it's one of those things where, you know, uh, I mean, this would have, would this have been Victoria's right Yeah, so, like, uh, there is that kind of thing where Victorians would have, like, ailments, which these days we would know as, like, specific things. It's like, oh, yes, you've done that, you've caught this, you've done that, you shouldn't have been... I don't know drinking water from where you've just taken a shit, which you know. know Victorians had some yeah. weird. So it's like, oh, we know why.
1: Damn hot
2: taste Yeah, we, well, yeah, this yeah. is it. Like we
0: know we know why Victorians were constantly. <laughs> of course, get,
2: now we know that you should do that. So. Well, I, <laughs> so, <laughs> modern medicine has come so far.
0: You know, or like you shouldn't really put mercury in this, and you know, like there were things yeah. that like Victorians were doing to themselves that doctors didn't know. Like they, you know, they were basically all quacks. They didn't know what to do, but they would tell them do this, you know, and go to this plate. Most of them they would say go to bath um which is a place over here not just like take a bath but literally go to a place which was just full of spas and they were all very expensive and rich people would go there and um you know actually I did see I saw a film at the cinema this year called The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne and there's a lot of that where you have like this family who are kind of wealthy in some parts uh, but they end up losing all their money but they spend a lot of times like going to the seaside and that's like the cure that's been prescribed to them is just go to the seaside and sit under a tent out in the fresh air um so like this idea that kind of like Victorians really didn't know what to kind of do it, it means that there is this the kind of the opportunity for somebody who is uh let's say you know evil to just stop pretending that they're treating someone when they're actually poisoning them <laughs> and you know it's it's like such a simple plot that I'm like, like the first couple of segments go by and you're like d- like it seems so obvious <laughs> that Ewing is yeah. is being poisoned, and then they're kind of like they reveal it, and you're like, "Where there was I not meant to know that that's what's happening? Yeah
2: Except, well especially again during the first scene when you see these two, Tom Hanks is being like or not Tom Hanks, I'm sorry, um uh, what's the actor's name Jim Sturgis Jim Sturgis. M- oh, thank you so much, Doctor. I'm so lucky that you are treating me. If I had met you, I don't know what I would do. You would surely never betray me. <laughs> like, it, it was laid on so thick that it was so
0: obvious. Yeah, and Tom, and Tom Hanks is very... Like, he is almost cartoony in how villainous he is. Yeah. He has, like, a lot of makeup on, and he's got, like, this weird beard, and he's got, like, a big nose, and, you know, like, a bulbous <laughs> yeah. nose, and just, like, e- like, everything about him just looks evil. <laughs> And it's like, why yeah. doesn't Jim Sturge just realize that he's being poisoned? Like, um.
1: Can we quickly, just like, uh, speaking of big noses, um, mm. I I was responding to Kelly in real time with my uh, my thoughts about Cloud Atlas last night. And I I commented on Susan Sarandon and her big pr- uh, prosthetic nose yeah. For uh, for this kind of piece of it. As Uh, Madame Horrocks.
2: Yeah, I actually, my my reaction to seeing, so of course seeing Susan Sarandon was a big moment for both of us because of the Rocky Horror connection. Um, My initial reaction, I saw her and I was like, no, that's not her, and then she started speaking I was like, oh my god, now it's Susan Sarandon, but then I was like, no, that's not her nose, that can't be her. So <laughs> I had this back and it forth, and when up. I eventually realized that they were that they were doing a bit of a, a bit of transformation because she was another role in the movie, I got it.
0: But yeah, it's it's interesting as well because you know we obviously Hugo Weaving's in every segment. I think it, like this is kind of the one of the smaller parts that he plays um, throughout the film, where he plays a guy called Haskell Moore, who is like a. Uh, I mean a guy who I think is pro-slavery <laughs> it's, about, it's about as much as you really find out about him um, but yeah you know he's obviously made his wealth from slavery that's like it's kind of obvious that that's, that's where it's come from um, and he's and they on- have
1: that that entire scene where they're walking in the field and uh, and they're like oh it's very hot out how uh, how are all these slaves dealing with him? and it's like oh don't worry about it <laughs> <laughs> slaves don't have feelings
0: yeah that, that's where he actually like, he, he collapses doesn't he yeah um, yeah. yeah, that and that—that's obviously when when he, when he is saying to Doctor Goose, "Yes, thank you very much for treating me for." That's where Doctor Goose, when he sees him passed out with like the key around his neck, and he's like, "Oh, obviously, you know, he he wonders what's in the in his box. He, obviously, it's going to be a lot of money." What's in the box? Yeah. So <laughs> so uh, as this as this as we kind of pop back and forth to this throughout the film, um, you know, Ewing is obviously not getting any better because he's being poisoned by his doctor, um, but he does find out that uh, Uatua, has um stowed away um and being a being a generally nice person he decides to tell the captain that they have a stowaway the captain of course uh captain Molyneux, played by jim Broadbent, and um he you know that he says you know obviously this guy he's not he's not just like a stowaway but he could be a good part of your crew um you know he's he, obviously ewing has spoken on his behalf And we have this kind of, like, I mean, you know, probably kind of the most tense sequence uh, apart, you know, in this section, uh, where Wotwa, like, kind of goes, like, he's told to kind of go up and do something with the sails. I'm not a sailor, I don't know what he's doing, Uh, but he kind of runs up with this rope and he kind of puts it through, and while he's doing that, somebody is getting ready to shoot him, with, obviously because it takes a while to load a gun, um, so he has the time to kind of actually do this task, and, you know, he does it obviously quicker than the rest of the crew, and he does it really well, and... As he kind of jumps off, he's going to be shot and Ewing kind of knocks the guy who's shooting him so he doesn't hit him. And then he kind of swings by and it lands on the deck. And, you know, Jim Broadbent is like, looks like we've got a new member of the crew. Um, And I would say, you know, within this whole... Obviously, apart from the fact that he's meant to be poisoning, you know, the fact that Ewing is being poisoned, you know, I would say, like, this is kind of the most tense part of it is, like, whether or not they're going to actually shoot this guy rather than just let him kind of join the crew. Um,
1: And this is one of my kind of least favorite tropes in general, just the thank goodness this person is useful so that uh, so that we can treat them like a human, instead of they're a human, let's treat them like a human.
2: Now, I'm also just, it didn't make a ton of sense to me because, so he's like, this guy is great, he can do anything, and the captain's like, I don't care, he's a stowaway, and then he witnesses him being, uh, I guess, like, a sailing prodigy going up there, and he's like, I don't give a shit, shoot him, and then
1: he swings down on a rope, and he's like, well, I didn't know he could do that, welcome to the
3: crew,
1: buddy. <laughs> <laughs> right. it's the, the ship is also, um, they they do the Cirque du Soleil um, yeah. when they're in harbor, so it's yes. important. It's important that, that yeah, it's you have important people to who have can those do rope stuff.
0: Yeah, I would say this though, and you know, uh, not siding with what are quite literally a crew of racists. Um, <laughs> you know, don't side with the racists. No, Darren. I'm not going to side with them. Apart from the fact that obviously, um, you know, if you're at sea, you've got to feed someone, and that food is only useful if it's going to people who can actually do something. So I I, I yeah, would think no, I mean, you know regardless of the color of his skin if you've got a stowaway and they're useless then you're just gonna shoot them and throw their body overboard and move on with things because you don't have the time to be feeding someone who can't contribute anything.
2: Yeah, I mean he he seemed to have more of an issue with him being a stowaway. What I yeah. didn't understand was why like why he changed his mind at the point that he did, I guess. I was like, I thought, he's clearly proven he could be useful before, but
1: then, I don't know, maybe he only had the one bullet, and then he was just like, all right, well. It's all about tension. Yeah. Dynamic tension.
0: I I mean, I think also, you know, uh, I mean, kind of in the earlier part of this story, we find out that the, the, the main character of the next section, Frobisher, is reading about this, and he's the one who figures out. He's like, you're being poisoned <laughs> Like to this book that he's reading that he's missing half of, which I think is meant to give us... The te- you know, it's meant to be the narrative tension of whether or not he actually is successfully poisoned. Like, we don't know how the story ends. Uh, but obviously, you know, he he's writing this, the story, so he must be alive by the time the story finishes. I mean, that makes for it to be published. But still, he's missing the ending of the story, effectively. So Frobisher never knows what happens to ewing whether or not he manages to get home um whether or not you know he may he, dr goose poisons him completely he doesn't know all that but as a viewer we get to see um you know obviously that, that goose he it seems like he's upping the dosage just because he wants to hurry up and and get the poisoning done with um and Watto is obviously you know having joined the crew and had ewing speak on his behalf is you know kind of looking out for him um and so you know we see that uh he kind of he, he interrupts goose like basically uh, about to poison him to death <laughs> because he just desperately wants to get the key and get his hand on his gold and um you know Watwa kind of comes in and starts fighting with him and then uh goose gets hit over the head with the chest full of money um which breaks it open and the money goes everywhere but basically his head's caved in by Wing, <laughs> who you know is for someone who's being poisoned for at least a couple of weeks i think he's remarkably uh quick on his feet and able to kill a man basically um you know
1: he's dying he didn't skip arm day
0: well <laughs> i guess yeah if he's got a couple of dumbbells either side of his bed while he's being poisoned he can still he can still build some muscle mass um but yeah so that that is like that's kind of where that i mean after the after they you know they successfully kill him and um you know he passes out he grows a beard um, because he's passed out for so long we find out when he wakes up that the crew have basically stolen all of his gold um and which I thought was quite funny because it's like you know uh, he he has this key around his neck to keep it safe and then this guy just basically almost poisons him to death just to get it but then the crew just steal it once he hits him over the head with it so i i don't know i just thought it was, there was a little bit of kind of uh, irony in there that he's, he spent some kind of he's gone to these precautions to keep it safe and then in the end everybody just nicks it all anyway um, of course, he then returns home to Tilda, and, um, you know, he's reunited with her, and they decide that they're going to become abolitionists, they're not going to have slaves, um, you know, and we get... I, I mean, I you know, I like the line which is, you know, where where Hugo Weaving is like, you know, you can't do anything, you know, like, this, it's, it's you know, fight it against the ocean. And obviously he's like, what is the ocean but a multitude of drops? Um, you know, which, at the same time, it's like, yeah, okay, I mean, you know... You're a rich guy who's guy is going to become, like, a person who, like, protests for his particular cause. I mean, I, I, it feels weird that this whole story is propelled by a rich white guy, basically, but, you know, I guess it, it kind of said something. Um, you know, 150 years after the abolition of slavery, finally we're on board with uh, abolition, I guess. I mean, I, don't know. I thought it was a bit of a weird ending, to be honest with you, in terms of, like, that whole story.
3: Um,
1: I... I really don't like white savior stories to begin with, and yeah. I think most of these um, have that.
2: Yeah. Well, that's what that was what made me realize that how bad the yellow face was because I was accusing, I was saying, "Oh, great, another white savior storyline with the future career." <laughs> and Brad was like, "He's not supposed to be white."
1: <laughs> I said the same thing though.
2: You <laughs> didn't see it was not. I mean, I guess I'm glad that they didn't like.
0: Take it
2: further to
0: make it more obvious. Didn't but, make you bring it? Yeah, no kidding.
2: Or
0: uh, Rob
1: Schneider and Oh no, uh, Chuck and Larry. I never you Chuck and Larry. Yeah. 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 That's the one. That's the Ch- that's
0: the one Chuck and Larry movie I'm in. <laughs> Yeah. So not a tuna, Chuck and Larry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, uh, you know, I mean. I, like I said, I enjoy Jim Sturgis in this, this first part. He, you know, he's he's also kind of, you know, a minor role in, in some of the other stuff going forward. Um, but in terms of the overall story, I'm like... I don't know. I mean, I feel like I should be giving, like, T-Hanks or no T-Hanks to each segment in this case because there are a couple of things that I like in this film. But uh, this... I mean, this entire first segment, it, it's kind of interesting. Obviously, it allows to it allows things to be connected because Frobisher is reading about this story um but he, you know he's doing nothing more than just like he doesn't it's not like he then goes and researches what happened to Ewing or anything like he just literally picks up a book he's only got half a book he gets halfway through and he's like yeah and then kind of shrugs his shoulders and and the and, and the rest of his story happens so uh yeah overall I you know it's an it's in, it's a kind of interesting from Tom Hanks point of view it's an interesting role because he's just so cartoonishly evil that it's weird that you know uh, Jim Sturgess's character even gets taken in by him
1: I would put this story kind of middle of the pack with how I feel about it. I, I don't think I super loved it, um, but it's not my least favorite. I think that this gets a neutral T. Hanks from me. <laughs> yeah. The the
2: things, I I just, I didn't, see any reason for there to be a slavery plotline in this movie besides it being 2012 it was in the um, movie yeah but I I do I did kind of like the whole poisoning plotline and I liked the connection to Furbushur even though I mean we can get into my feelings later in the movie about how they handled the like the connections between people and also the like the reusing of actors, uh, but, uh, yeah, we can get to that when we talk about forever, but I, um, but I guess it could have been worse, it definitely wasn't my (laughs) least favorite, but it, I, I do think it could have been cut from the whole movie, (laughs) so.
1: Would you call this a neutral T. (laughs) Hanks I
0: guess, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, we've mentioned him enough, so let's get into the story of Robert Frobisher slash Rufus Sixsmith. Not Sexsmith. Obviously, he's called Sixsmith because there are six stories in this film. And...
1: Oh! I just got that. (laughs) uh, Here I am. Just getting that. And David Mitchell... Real discovery here. David
0: Mitchell, not the comic that everyone's thinking of, but the author... Um, and I'm think the other David Mitchell is author an author, but he didn't write this novel. Um, it would have been a lot funnier if he did. Uh, he he's not subtle, so <laughs> so. Um, but I I here's what I will say. Like this, uh, I I find this whole kind of uh the the Frobisher stuff kind of interesting. Um, not only because I think Ben Wishaw is obviously probably one of the, the kind of the better actors in this film. <laughs> um you know if not i mean if we're ranking them i would probably say he's at least in the top two um of everybody in this film um you know maybe top three depending on who you like but yeah you know he's like he's really good and he also isn't in the soul part uh, he's the one actor of the main actors who isn't in the soul part <laughs> so maybe maybe that's why he gets some goodwill uh because he doesn't take part in that um but yeah he's playing robert frobisher who is I think they're trying to imply he's some kind of student, or, you know, just newly out of college, um, or university, as we say over here, um, and he has been caught with, um, uh, a wealthy, I would say, Rufus Sixsmith, the character is supposed to be, um, you know, the son of, like, some wealthy people, you know, that have a reputation and they have, like, a standing in society, and so obviously, you know, an affair between the two of them would cause some kind of scandal, and um, you know, he's on the verge of being caught, um, by, I think Tom is it Tom Hanks is playing the hotel manager at the start here and the, at the end of this, or is it a different hotel that he's in? But there's a there's a hotel manager who's kind of coming to kick them out. I don't think it's Tom Hanks at the start. It's a it's a different actor, um, and it might be Hugh Grant even if I'm honest. Uh, it was very hard to tell because they only very briefly in it. But you know, Frobisher makes an exit out of a window, um, basically wearing nothing but a coat. Um, and, you know, hurriedly putting some clothes on and just kind of running away from the scene, stealing someone's bicycle, um, you know, just kind of getting out there as quickly as he can so he can get onto a train to go to Edinburgh, um, where he's going to meet Vivian Ayers. Uh, Vivian, like the character of the, the Young Ones, uh, being a man and not a woman, uh, spelt V-Y-V-Y-A-N, which is an unusual way to spell Vivian, um, and played by Jim Broadbent, um, and he is a composer who has basically stopped composing and he has called for, um, someone to come and help him, you know, to kind of put down his, uh, his compositions. Uh, the role is an amanuensis, which is basically, you know, just a secretary. Fancy, very fancy word for a secretary, basically. Somebody who just makes notes and stuff. Um... And so you know what I like about this section as well. It, you know, it could be it could be said it's lazy, but there's a lot of voiceover because he's writing letters. So you know, when we when we hear about the encounter where he hit, where Frobisher had to run away from being discovered with Sixsmith, it's in a letter that he sent back to Sixsmith <laughs> saying, you know, oh, I got out the window. Like he's kind of recounting what happened after the last time Sixsmith saw him. Um, and I do kind of like that. And obviously Ben Wishore there's a reason why they made him the voice of Paddington. Uh, he wasn't the first choice. Uh, the first choice was um, what's his face? Please
1: say Will Ferrell. No, no,
0: no. It was it was Colin Firth. <laughs> they recorded all the dialogue for the first Paddington film with Colin Firth, obviously a rival of Hugh Grant um, on stage and screen. And then uh, they didn't they didn't like what Colin Firth did, so they got Ben Wishar in to kind of come in and re-record all the lines, and they redid some of the animation. Uh, and, you know, that, that those films, obviously, everybody loves. Paddington, Paddington 2, which soon to be released, I'm sure, this year, Paddington 3. Everyone loves those films because Ben Whishaw is great as Paddington because he, you know, he has this kind of innocent voice. And the the letters, I think, work in this part of the film because the voice that Ben Whishaw is using is this kind of enthusiastic, young person in love. Um and you know straight from the start you know i mean not just because it's ben Wishaw, but like obviously this to me feels like one of the better parts of the film where we kind of we get to meet this person who is doing this kind of like this mad dash and then just getting on the train and going to edinburgh <laughs> it's just like it's it's very kind of like um uh i don't know like i mean i you know i studied music at a level um and if somebody just paid me to write down music that they, they were humming that would be a dream job quite frankly
1: it seems like a really great job and uh the fact that that he's just kind of uh, mumbling things and then uh, allowing for music to happen around that and i think i just heard um a very cute cat um but anyway um i i very i very much appreciate kind of the atmosphere of creation that uh, that is building up in uh, in vivian's mansion i don't know it sounds it seems like the perfect job for me
0: i should be said as well you know the music is uh, you know uh tom tickler is directing this part of the film and he also composed the music along with like his two frequent collaborators uh johnny Kleimek and reinhold hell heil reinhold heil i think it is um Yeah, so like the the three of them did the music for the whole film. So obviously part of this story is um, coming up with what will eventually be called the Cloud Atlas Sextet, um, uh, which is the most obvious reference to the structure of the film (laughs) that is in the. Apart from the name Sixsmith, like those two things are like such kind of obvious references to to like what is going on in terms of the structure of the film. Um, But yeah, Kelly, how did you feel about uh, Frobisher? Uh, and his, his misadventures. Okay.
3: So,
2: this was, in general, one, maybe my favorite of the storylines, and I kind of feel like it could have just been the movie. Because it was not, they had to skip a lot of things, and I do not think, I mean, we haven't really discussed this yet, but I do not think that they that they convinced... Me that there would have been any reason for Frobisher
1: to fall in love with this guy, or think he was falling in love with him, or whatever. Uh, the heirs or Sixsmith? No, no, the,
2: no, the old guy, the okay, okay. yeah, okay. yeah.
1: No, of course Sixsmith. I mean, we can assume they had a relationship
2: beforehand. The other guy was just like he's like, oh, I just imagine loving you and all that. Did I miss a? Did I miss a storyline here? I don't know. The other thing, I guess this is a good time to talk about my frustration with the with the theme of, like, past lives and connections across time because I actually think that's a really interesting theme that I've always been intrigued by, and I just wish they had executed it kind of differently. Like, especially if he's going to, I mean, later in the movie and also here a little bit, they explicitly state, like, you know, like love stretch. You know, love stretches throughout timelines and different lives. Or, I, I, and I think if you're going to use the same actors, it would have been more interesting to have the actors, the same actors connecting in the different storylines. You know, and it wouldn't even. For example the actors who played Sexsmith and, and Frobisher wouldn't necessarily have to be romantic lovers, but maybe in one timeline, they're brothers or a really good friends. You know what I mean? Roommates. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm saying like... Same it, would, yeah, it would have been more interesting for me if they had... If in every timeline, those two characters connected and had some form of... you know deep connection with each other but again didn't necessarily have to be romantic every time another thing I really wish that I liked Frobisher I loved Frobisher reading the diary um you know however many years later and being connected to it and I would have loved it if he was also the actor who played um Yui. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on that character's name. Yeah. yeah. If he, and so and so he felt that connection because it would then imply that like they were reincarnations of each other or whatever. I think
0: I think but... they didn't do that because like obviously you know James Darcy is playing uh, Sixsmith and yeah. he will play Sixsmith in the next segment in old man makeup. Um. So mm-hmm. in that case, you have one person playing. I mean, it's the only time where one person plays the same character of different ages. And I think yeah. if they'd have had the character of Adam Ewing being played by Ben Wishart, I think it would have ended up being very confusing because you would have you would have assumed that they were somehow related. And I think making the characters all... Like, having him reading Ewing's story is okay because it's just this book... He, it's just this random book that he's found at Vivianette's house. Like, there's no real connection to it. Yeah. But having him be related to him and also find this random book would have just been extremely odd, I think. And I, I, I think because they were going to use... James Darcy is the same character in two segments. I don't think that they would be able to maintain that consistency of having the constant. I know it's saying, like, the same two people always ending up falling in love in different time periods. I think that's, you know, it's yeah. obviously an interesting idea. Um, you know, and, and, you know, if, if Six Smith, you know, he's very briefly in the next six segment, but if we'd have seen him with someone who maybe. Um, you know like I, I'm guessing that obviously you know the, the implication is at the end of this story Sixsmith never really falls in love again uh, certainly yeah. when we see him later on it seems like he's been you know alone since um, spoiler alert the death of Robert Frobisher um, but maybe if he was mm-hmm. with someone who was you know kind of near his own age and looked a little bit like an older Ben Wisher or something maybe we'd be like oh you know that like it was kind of the only way he could fall in love again mm-hmm. was by, by seeing someone who he recognises as looking like Frobisher or something but again I,
2: yeah. Or, I don't know. Yeah. I, I also... I, I'm just saying, if you're going to do that theme and use the same actors, I feel like it works against your theme to have the same the same actors playing characters who have nothing to do with each other.
0: Yeah. And,
2: Does that make sense? And I, I would have preferred either they do what I just described, or I would have been fine with them... Not reusing actors. I think I think that was just a lot of <laughs> uh, offensive makeup
3: choices. I I don't. <laughs> I I
0: think the the issue they had was they had to have Tom Hanks in every single one of the six segments. That was one of the conditions I yeah. think of them getting the funding. And you, you know you couldn't have like. Tom Hanks just playing one character and then other yeah. people playing different characters that were meant to be the Tom Hanks characters in different time periods. Or yeah, it would have been
2: like an Eddie Murphy
0: movie at that point. <laughs> yeah, so, so, but also the budget was kind of low, so reusing the actors actually yeah. helped them in terms of the budget. Like, it, it meant they didn't have to have a cast of, you know, 150 people. They could just limit it to, you know, the, the kind of the, the small groups in each time period. Um,. I don't know.
2: That that's that's how I feel about it. Yeah. I, I think it's I think it's strange to imply like, oh, these people are being reincarnated, but these same actors are not the reincarnations of those people, if that's what you're thinking. <laughs> no. You know what I
0: mean? Although I <laughs> yeah. would say I would say like the kind of obviously this is where we have Halle Berry playing the character of Jacasta Ayers, who is the extremely young wife of Jim Broadbent in this particular time period. And oh. She's uh, playing a, uh, a person who is not black. Let's say that. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah. I, you know, we get to see her naked and they've clearly done an all over body makeup job because her entire skin tone is a lot lighter than she normally is. Even I think she's got blue contacts in and her hair is different. And I've, like they've even it looks like they've even done a little something to her face to make it look slightly different as well. Um, so weird. Yeah.
1: So... It- Speaking of Jacasta, yes, who ends up, um, of course, wait. we should say,
0: becoming a lover of uh, Robert Frobisher, but just you know, for the mechanics of it, she's she's not into it. <laughs>
2: Jacasta with Harry Bailey. Yeah. Yeah. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This might be my favorite ever I, I episode for people realizing stuff as we're going through.
1: I, I really love that uh, that Kelly and I are acting like we're hungover and you're telling us the horrible things that happened the night <laughs> before and we're like, wait, oh no, oh oh no. Um, but the the this was uh, this I think was my favorite of the stories as well. But there were things that they just kind of threw in there and kind of did a wink at us, um, like oh, this guy doesn't particularly like Jocasta, you know, because she's Jewish and he's a Nazi. <laughs> um, and they, they just bring that up and then completely drop it. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no come back to that. Like,
0: yeah, because we, 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 we... Let's circle back. I was going to say, we get to meet Hugo Weaving, probably the least evil of the characters that he plays in this entire film, um, as uh, Kessel Kesselring. Um, you know, you can kind of tell that Tom Tikwa is directing this part because they've thrown a German fella in there. Played by an Australian, of course. I don't think Hugo Weaving plays his own race in any of the six stories in this thing. Whatever the race of old <laughs> Georgie is in the in the extreme future. Um, but um, Leprechaun. <laughs> yeah. I, well, he's definitely not that. So, uh, yeah, so he's playing Kesselring, who apparently was in love with Jocasta, but couldn't marry her because Jocasta is Jewish. Played by Harry Belly, and he's German. And apparently might be a nazi as well because he's yeah because it's 1936 of course so you know things things are relatively rocky for robert frobisher trying to keep his sexuality hidden from people but also they're not extremely good times for jewish people in germany um but yeah they kind of breeze over that like it's very it's very (laughs) odd to set something in 1936 and just breeze over the whole you know uh, imminent war in in germany thing um,
3: yeah they're like, this guy's a Nazi
1: but that's neither here nor
0: there <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's just so you know he's a, Nazi yeah.
1: <laughs> and we're also not going to talk to
0: him ever again no, he's, yeah. Uh, yeah he's in literally one scene uh, but, but apparently he's a great yeah. conductor so he, he sees the new work that has been put together by, um, by Vivian and Frobisher um, and obviously they are growing closer as you know people who are working on music um, you know, which obviously if you're spending your hours, you know, writing out various musical scores, then yeah, that can you know, it's quite kinda of, of an intimate process. The both of you sitting in front of a piano. Uh obviously something we will revisit once I get to Saving Mr. Banks. You know, people sit in front of a piano composing stuff. You know, it's obviously you know, you end up growing close to people. You know, obviously, while Frobisher and Jacasta are becoming lovers, um, Frobisher has also begun writing what will be known as the Cloud Atlas Sextet. Um and obviously, there's also the whole thing with Sixsmith, where he he's you know he keeps writing to Sixsmith and telling him what he's doing, and you know uh, we do see a moment where uh, you know the, the, at the piano he's performing with uh, Ayers, and then um, at the end of it, Frobisher almost goes in to kiss Jim Broadbent, which is seeing Ben Wishart almost kissing Jim Broadbent with like a gigantic white beard is kind of amusing anyway. Uh, but then Jim Broadbent starts laughing, and obviously Ayers. I think Ayers kind of already, you know, he makes it clear he already knew about, um, you know, a potential scandal that could kind of bring down uh, Frobisher, and that it, like he only let him in because he knew he could hold it over his head, um, and now he's kind of tried to come onto him. He's, you know, he has something else that he kind of, um, you know, extort him with and force him to c- kind of keep composing and also to give him you know any music that he composes while he's there um and so he can kind of claim it and you know there is a discussion where like he says that's the music from my dream um and i'm like okay so you dreamt something that i composed that doesn't mean it's yours (laughs) like (laughs) (laughs) he he kind of really take he kind of really oversteps his bounds where he's like yeah that's mine i I want credit on it and it's like buddy you might have dreamt about it but only because i was playing it while you're asleep like you know it's it's kind of a funny conversation but it's I don't think that's the real conversation that he's he's having. Like, he's not saying to him, "Oh, I dreamt about that music." He's saying to him, "It it doesn't matter what the excuse is. I'm going to claim authorship over it because if you don't agree to that, then I'll ruin you." Um, and obviously that is kind of the dynamic that we have. I think it's. I mean, even though he, like again, he goes through the motions with Jocasta, which means, of course, I mean, being forced, and it's such a terrible thing to have, uh, relations with a woman as beautiful as Harry Belly. I mean, it's. I don't know how he did it. So, yeah. <laughs> A, I mean, of the thing. times
1: that I've had to <laughs> fall on that sword, it's,
0: yeah. been, it's been a trial. Yeah, I mean, I I was put in the position where they were like, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to have sex with Halle Berry, I'd be like, I mean, I'll try. Let's pray like that. You know, we'll see how far yeah. we can get into this. But yeah, so yeah, I think... You're so yeah, are so Yeah, I mean, I think the implication is meant to be that Frobisher is bisexual, but really he's, he, you know, he's, let's say, 75% gay, 25% bisexual. Like, it's clear that, you know, he's in love with Sixsmith, and that's mostly where he is. But, you know, he's not going to turn down Jocasta uh, as some kind of arrangement. Um, because, obviously, uh, the, uh, again, the implication is that Vivian cannot perform, which is not surprising because it looks like Jim Broadbent is meant to be playing somebody who's like 80 uh, in this particular... He's not young in any segment, but... but in fact, he looked, he looked a little bit younger when he was playing the captain on the on the ship. It looks like they'd done some makeup to him as well. But um, in this section, it's clearly, you know, he's he can't perform sexually and so Jocasta will, you know, just use Frobisher for that. And then between the two of them, they're effectively extorting Frobisher for music, which is just a weird a weird thing to do, but I guess, you know, that's what you do if you're a composer, you, you know. Um, that's poly-relationships. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't
2: know. It just, I guess I would have needed to see anything that would have endeared Vivian to Frobisher, which I don't feel like I saw. I know you're saying that they worked together on music, but he still was like... A mean
3: old man, <laughs> you know, like, Yeah. Like he, uh,
2: it, the implication is like, well, he's gay and he was near a man, <laughs> so obviously they tell him mom.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, we get we get like, um, uh, I mean, I assume it's like a dream sequence where Frobisher and Sixsmith meet in like a china shop, and they smash up a bunch of china, yeah. uh, which is actually intercut with a different sex scene, which happens later on in the film, um. Between Jim Sturgis and um, and Duna Bay. Um, but I just thought it was... I, I was like, I'm not quite sure what this is meant to be, but like, they, when they see each other, they're going to be so happy they're going to smash up a whole bunch of China. I don't know what that's... Like, <laughs> it felt like a weird thing. That's that they what kinda... happens when Kelly and I hang out. <laughs> you just smack him up. Yeah, yeah we
1: for a while and we just break stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or when I hang out with anybody,
3: because I'm just very confident.
0: Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so um, we see a bit of that, but then we also, we you know, we we find out that... Um, you know, Frobisher obviously wants out of this arrangement. He's not just going to stay there forever composing for this this old man. Um, and so he goes to the bedroom and he sees that um, in a drawer um, that that Ayers has a gun. And he takes that gun and he loads the gun and he kind of keeps it on himself. Um, and when later on Ayers tries to come in and take away the manuscripts of his you know work before you know as he's packing to get out of there, um, Frobisher shoots. Um, shoots Ayers, <laughs> and uh, I think to start off with, your mentor think he's killed him because he kind of hustles out of there pretty quickly. Uh, but we find out a couple of segments later that actually he's still alive, and now Frobisher is just on the run, um, and he's gone back to um, you know his his where he was caught earlier, and he's persuaded the hotel manager, played by Tom Hanks, again playing a fairly evil person, <laughs> um, you know that he is basically covered for him and obviously he's he's checked in there using the name Ewing, you know a reference obviously to the the other the first section and the manager is basically saying if he if he doesn't kind of pay him lots of money uh, he's going to let the police know and um you know frobisher ends up completing the cloud atlas sextet um i should say a sextet is traditionally a string arrangement and it's normally two viol- two violins two violas and two cellos uh, although sometimes some composers uh, will take out one of the violin, uh, one of the violas, and put in a, a second violin, um, or sometimes they will add a fourth violin if they're feeling crazy and take out one of the cellos. Generally, one cello is enough for four viola. It's more than a match for four violins, quite frankly, in terms of volume. Um, so you know the the it is completed, and we see. I mean, you know, this di- I mean, I will say I did. You know, shed a tear at this where uh, Frobisher sees Sixsmith. You know, he sees his drill bean, He kind of hides. Um, and he doesn 't let him see him you know just so we can see him one last time, and you know that I thought that was quite sad and then he goes back to his hotel, and just as Sixsmith has tracked him down by you know this the hotel manager is wearing this very nice um, waistcoat, which was you know obviously once frobisher 's because he didn 't have any more money to give him um you know at that moment, just as he finds where he is, Frobisher uh, shoots himself in the head. Uh, while he's in the bathtub, and we hear the gunshot, and then you know, Sixsmith obviously goes up and he you know holds him in his arms, and we get a very graphic shot of the back of his head with all the blood, um, and yeah, you know, it, he was too late. He could, you know, I think that you know, if he'd have been there a couple of minutes earlier, he probably would have stopped him. But as it is, you know, Frobisher obviously felt that you know his like his reputation was either going to be ruined or he was going to be on the run all the time. Or well, you know, it just wasn't there was nothing left for him to do other than just finish his. His one composition, which will connect us to the next part, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, the, obviously the ending uh, of all—I mean, the implication in the in the first part is up until halfway through the film, you think that Ewing is going to be poisoned and he's going to die, um, and then you, you know, as we, we because we've heard the the narration of the suicide note when when we started the the stuff with Frobisher, we kind of know Frobisher is going to die as well, so it feels like the first part of this film is going to be people being killed. Obviously Ewing survives and Frobisher doesn't. Probably one of the reasons why maybe this is... I, I'm not saying it's going to be my favourite thing because Ben Wishart kills himself, but it, it feels like it's a more realistic ending to the story than, you know, having a slave on a ship rescue you and, and stop you from being poisoned. Like, if it, it feels like, basically, there would be... Like, it's, given the time period this is set in, there would have been no way out for Frobisher. You know, this was just it. Unfortunately, we then do fall headlong into the Bury Your Gaze... Like, you know, like that we can't avoid it, but you know, I, I I'm willing to forgive it because I think Ben Whishaw is really good, particularly in the final few scenes where, you know, he he sees Sixsmith one last time and doesn't let him see him, you know, and it's kind of a tragic end. But yeah, I mean, you know, it just ends up being that cliche, but there's nothing we can do about that, unfortunately. So
1: thoroughly enjoyed it. This is I, I think my favorite, um, even past Barrier Gaze. Um, it is, um, it very much, like, scratches that itch for me of, uh, of tragic romance that, like, if only he was there three minutes earlier, like, that sort of thing. Um, I do thoroughly enjoy that, and the, uh, I think the acting in this was well done. Uh, yeah, this is very much a yes, T. Hanks, for me.
2: Yes, thanks. Yeah, I I agree. Like I said, I think this is probably my favorite. You'll you'll find as we go forward that I enjoy the storylines that are the most grounded in reality, and the more wacky and or unrealistic they are, the less interest I'm going to have. So,
1: yeah. Am I right in thinking that other than Halle Berry there's uh, there's no like uh, and honestly with that um, that's not blackface or yellowface at least um, <laughs> is this the, the least of the racist um, stories I mean, as far as aesthetics I, I mean
0: it I depends how you feel about an Australian playing a German but yeah I mean it's, like it's, the, it's <sighs> the one where the least amount of people are, do, are playing completely against type um, though, you know, Halle Berry, because she does You know, uh, get naked for the sex scene You can see that whatever they were doing with her face They've done for the whole body Which is kind of extraordinary that they went to that kind of level
3: Is the post-apocalyptic
2: one Racist?
0: I mean, if we could understand what they were saying movie. Possibly? I don't know, I mean <laughs> Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I, it felt a little weird to have, But it was the same dialect It, it felt a little weird when Halle Berry Was, uh, was speaking
0: Yeah, I mean it, the, the, I would say this: the fight, the final segment, the the way they're talking feels like it's a little too close to like Jamaican patois for me. So I'm like, yeah, I, I thought Creole. Yeah, like this. Yeah,
1: this, yeah, it, or anything it, like it, that. Yeah, yeah. It,
0: it feels it, like there's... It, it almost. Yeah. yeah. There's. I don't. Know, there's something there, but yeah, this is the this is the most grounded, least racist segment in the entire film, and we we skipped over the fact that in the previous one, Tom Hanks dropped the N word. So, I mean.
1: And Jim yeah. Broadbent, yeah. that was that was the N word yeah. <laughs> yeah. plot.
0: So neither of them, neither Jim Broadbent nor Tom Hanks in this one, dropped the N word. Nor at any point did they really call Robert Frobisher any slurs. So I felt like that was a plus. I,
1: yeah. I think that didn't Broadbent say something? He says uh, he says
0: you're kind. As it, as it, when he, he also when he,
1: calls him a dandy, which yeah. isn't quite.
0: I mean, it doesn't I think feel that se- yeah, it doesn't feel that severe. But when when he's got the gun, he says your kind never like when he's like I'll shoot you, and he says your kind never do. You know, which a standard kind of like you know mild homophobia. But there's no dropping of any slurs, so I was reasonably pleased with that section. But yeah, I mean, uh, my favourite part of the film mostly. I enjoy it. I mean, once we get there, the, like the next heavy Jim Broadbent sequence. You know, I do enjoy that quite a bit. But yeah, this is you know this is probably the best part of the film. And like you say, this could have been a film. Just this, just alone could have been like 90 minutes and we could have just enjoyed Ben Wishar and uh, James Darcy. Without what James Darcy has to do later on, you know, we could have really enjoyed (laughs) that. But as it is, they decided to make it one sixth of the film.
1: What if we get a time machine and we convince the Wachowskis and everybody involved, like instead of having this be a movie, have it be a miniseries and like uh, you have the first... We've got six yeah. episodes where you kind of tell all the stories, and then the final one is like just kind of tie them all together. So it's a seven a uh, seven episode miniseries. And uh, I also I, I
2: pitched. I, I also said that this should have been a miniseries. But it a three hour movie sucks for everyone unless it's like The Godfather. And also, <laughs> um. On top of that, they did not have the time and the three hours to even flesh things out the way they needed to. Yeah. Even though, I will say, in the movie's favour, I will say I appreciated that they kept all of the individual storylines very simple.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, which brings us to 1973, uh, which is probably the yeah. most simple... Of all the stories in this, it is probably the simplest it is li- it's literally like four scenes. It's probably more than that. But like in terms of what happens, it's like it's there's very few like joining of the dots between what's going on. It's like it's meant to be like a mystery like we see later on that the story is written up as a mystery novel, but I don't think there's any real mystery here. It's fairly simple what's happening. Yeah. Um and we have Louisa Ray, uh played by Harry Berry. There's no Jim Broadbent in this section, I should say, and there's no Susan Sarandon. Um but we do get a returning James Darcy playing the older version of the same character. Um, who is clearly, you know, alone and, um, you know, stuck in a job that he quite clearly hates, and he doesn't, you know, he ends up running into Louisa Ray when they're in a lift and they get stuck together, and there's a nice little sequence where it's just all in red, because obviously it's like the emergency light, and they're kind of talking about themselves and their lives and stuff, and he kind of says, you know, like, how far would you, because he, you know, he realizes she works for a newspaper or some kind of magazine, and he says, how far would you go to protect the source? And, you know, they talk a little bit about uh, his niece, Megan, and she mentions her birthmark, which I think is actually a recurring theme. Like, most of the characters have that birthmark, but they don't really, this is the only sequence where they really talk about it in any kind of in-depth way.
2: Um, I do want to note here that she says, my mother thought it was cancer and was trying to get me to have it removed, and I was like, she thought you were born with cancer that <laughs> presented itself as, like, just a birthmark?
0: Obviously, a very, very cautious mother, I would say. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, also, it does... Like, obviously, when um, Jim Sturgis was, like, exposed to sunlight, he kind of fainted. So maybe there's some kind of sunlight theme about, you know, maybe she had skin cancer. There's You know, something going on there, maybe, a little bit. But, um, yeah. And we see that Six Smith is reading some of his old letters from that Frobisher wrote to him uh this kind of intercuts with some of the stuff that's happening with uh, with frobisher in the previous sequence uh obviously uh, the director really wants to establish the fact that this is the same character in both, in both sequences he wants to make you understand that this is definitely not two different characters they are the same character uh you know and you know because obviously everything else particularly the fact we're going to see james darcy a couple of other times looking very different so he really wants to make it clear that this is just six myth But he's older and he's now in san francisco and he's working for um a nuclear power plant company which has recently i think been taken over by lloyd hooks played by hugh grant who you know he used to be into oil and now he's for some reason um, into nuclear and people don't know why but you know he's just a charming person Um, who, when he eventually meets Halle Berry, is like, if every lady journalist looked as good as you, then I would start reading newspapers. (laughs) So, yeah, so, you know, but she, she, like, she's, she, obviously, Sixsmith kind of contacts her and he's, like, you know, implying that he wants to give her some information about something that would be a story. And, you know, um, but while, while he's waiting for her to come and meet him at his apartment um we see hugo weaving <laughs> the most evil man in this universe pop up as a guy known as bill smoke and he basically shoots um six the same way that frobisher kills himself so they both end up dying the same method with a gun in the mouth and he kind of lays him on the bed you know he's got gloves on so he puts the gun in his hand to stage it as a suicide and then he takes this report uh, that six was going to give to louisa ray and then he kind of disappears um, and then she is let into the room. And, um, you know, she finds out that he's dead. <laughs> and and the information isn't there, but the letters that he was reading from Frobisher are underneath him, and she takes those letters uh, before the police arrive um, so that she can start to read them. Um, but, yeah, you know, so... Unfortunately, that's, that's the end of James Darcy as Rufus Sixsmith. <laughs> so he... He was in love with Robert Frobisher. He looks like he didn't have any other relationships for about forty years, and then he got shot in the head by Hugo Weaving. R. I. P. Rufus Sixsmith. Um, yeah. So poor one out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: I I thought that this was a fairly good tie. Uh, this was one of the kind of better progressions in the film, and. I I think that that uh, that it really says a lot about the acting that as soon as I saw him in the elevator, it's like oh it's that guy but older, cool. Yeah. So uh, so this was one that I think they did a good job. Yeah, I I thought it was fun.
0: Yeah, I mean I mean I'll say I'll say this like obviously they just keep telling us oh Halle Berry's a you know investigative reporter and she, like she doesn't do a huge amount of investigating <laughs> like.
3: Well, is this not the same?
2: Is this not the same? Halle Berry, who then talks to the guy at the lab and takes the papers and gets and goes off the bridge.
0: Yeah, but I mean, like she she gets she gets to, you know, she gets she uses her access. Um, it's implied, you know, by her father, uh, who is played by the yeah. same actor who was uh, what were in the first part. Um. It's kind of implied that through her connections of who her father is, she gets access to the to nuclear power plant, obviously, where, um, where uh, Sixsmith works. She sees his ID badge, I think, and that's where she gets the idea to kind of contact them to go and, you know, uh, talk to them. And obviously she's met at the door by Hugh Grant playing Lloyd Hooks, who is, you know, as charming as he's ever been, but playing a deliberately kind of like 70s, um, you know, boss who just kind of like keeps ogling people and slapping people on the ass and that kind of thing <laughs> and it's just like yeah. very deliberately very sexist and kind of a little bit over the top in terms of like uh, the thing but yeah she goes into the office that was six Smith's office and she sees some paperwork and then she you know isaac Sachs, uh, who's played by tom hanks kind of finds her and kind of takes her back to lloyd hooks and you expect he's going to say you know she was in this office looking at it but in the end he's like oh she was just looking for the toilets and you know so he kind of covers for her and that kind of builds an immediate bond between the two of them um and instantly he f- he falls in love with her because she's Halle Berry and she's one of the most attractive people on the planet so why wouldn't he fall in love with her yeah. you know like it feels kind of obvious that you know if you're Tom Hanks and you're like you know 15 years older than Halle Berry and certainly not your 80s peak um, you know, if Halle Berry's there and she's kind of taking a mild interest in something and you've, you know, built this bond by covering for her, uh, of course he's going to fall in love with her. In, in fact, he says in his little diary that he writes on the plane, I've fallen in love with her and I've only known her like a day. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, obviously this, this causes some issues because, you know, Bill Smoke uh, is on the case. Uh, But in between all the intrigue, she actually, you know, reading the letters of Frobisher, she tracks down a copy of the sextet and she goes to this record store and they're playing it. She obviously requested it and they're playing it and the guy who's, you know, selling it to her is like, it's amazing, you know, which is really funny because obviously this is directed by Tom... Uh, tick where this this part is and he's the one who wrote the music with his you know his, his two guys who do the music so he's kind of complimenting himself at how great the music in this film is so uh i just thought that was kind of amusing that he's like doing that up front um but yeah i i I mean i like that as well as a way of connecting um, you know, not just like having Six Myth appear, but also the, you know this music, which will, which obviously features throughout the film in various different ways, but kind of really identifying it in this part and saying, yeah, this is the the cloud act at the
1: I definitely enjoy the music, uh, and I'm uh, sometimes in films when they talk about they're uh, they're composing something and uh, and it's going to be really cool. Uh, you don't get that payoff of being able to hear it, and I'm happy that. Uh, that we do at least get to hear snippets of it. So yeah. So for yeah. me, that was a hooray moment.
0: Yeah. Um, at this particular point, um, <laughs> obviously, you know, Ray is aware of the report. Uh, she gets a copy of the report. Um, but at that moment, um, while Isaac Sachs is on the plane, um, it's taken off. We see that Bill Smoke was just on the plane. Uh, and then Ray is in her car, and she's, you know, looking at the report. Um, and then, as as she is run off the road, uh, the plane explodes in the sky. <laughs> and a uh, lot of effort just to kill one man. Um, but yeah, so uh, R.I.P. Uh, Isaac Sachs, one of the few people in the film that is not killed with a headshot. Um, Dr. Henry Goose <laughs> killed with a headshot. Um, obviously, Frobisher and Sixsmith killed with a headshot. Isaac sacks blown up in I mean, a plane.
2: Presumably, his head also explodes. But um, we, I think we're past it now. But I don't want to skip past the line in the movie that made me most angry. Which one was that? <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was. It was <laughs> when Halle Berry is trying to convince him to give her. The reports, and he's like, I don't know. I know I'm the one who called you here, but I also could lose my job. But on the other hand, it would uh, it would be horrible for a lot of people. Hmm. And then she goes, You have to do whatever you can't not do. <laughs> and the movie treats this like uh, like a life changing line, whereas it was actually so stupid (laughs) that, uh, I was yelling at the screen, so.
1: And, um, as as I might have alluded to, when I was watching this last night, um, I was doing this while drinking, and at that point, I just messaged Kelly with, you have to do whatever you can't not do, with a little, like, meh face, and, uh, and Kelly was uh, was very very happy that we shared that moment of this was bad. I
0: th- I think her convincing has more to do with the fact that she's Halle Berry than any words that she's saying. I don't think like Tom Hanks was paying any attention to the words. But yeah, I mean you know obviously uh, you know when she goes underwater the report is ruined. She manages to escape out of her car, uh, which I I haven't said at this up to this point, but it's a it's a beetle. Um, So, you know, uh, I I don't know how hard it is to get out of those cars, but they were, you know, uh, notoriously heavy cars made out of steel. So um, we find out, though, that um, Joan Napier, uh, played by, of course, the wonderful Keith David in this particular part of the film. Later on, things get a bit more hairy about his characters. Um, He's the head of security, and he was friends with her father, And, you know, apparently in, um, I don't know, was it in Vietnam or the Korean War? One of the wars, her father saved him, so obviously he feels like he owes her something. And um, he's trying to figure out how they could get, like, another copy of the report. Um, And they, they have this discussion where they're like, why would a guy who's, like, from the, like, oil industry take over a nuclear power plant and suppress a report that basically says a nuclear power plant is not working properly and is about to fail and will cost millions to, you know, put right. Um, And they kind of figure out that he wants it to fail and he wants nuclear power to not be viable so that he can make more money from oil. I was a little kind of hazy on exactly what his motivations were because it's not like in the 70s the oil companies were starving for cash. Like, they were making a lot of money, so... Um, yeah I mean I think coincidentally this is set roughly the same time as Licorice Pizza which obviously has a big plot line about the oil crisis and the uh, you know the lack of oil or whatever so um, but yeah I, if that felt a bit kind of thin to me like the idea that Hugh Grant is trying to make a nuclear power plant fail so that he can stoke the fear in the country or something um,
1: so I I first know- I started feeling that way, but then I was like, "I mean, big oil bad. Let's mustache twirl a little. I'm fine with it." <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, but it felt like they kind of glossed over it a little bit because they're like, "This feels like there's not a proper motivation." But they just, they just, they just want to make the like the MacGuffin is just the report, and they've just got to get another copy of the report. Um, and the kid who is the kid detective who is staying with Halle Berry. Um, figures out that, you know, someone called Megan was sent a copy of something in the post, um, and maybe she might be able to help them out. Um, but before that, before that is done, they need to uh, smoke out Bill Smoke. They need to expose him, um, and also, obviously, of course, uh, Lloyd Hooks if they can. And so they deliberately uh, set it up so that <laughs> Louisa is walking down the street so that Bill Smoke can try and kill her. <laughs> and... I'm not completely happy with this plan. It seems a little bit like... But, you know, she's wearing a it's wire. Fun. Yeah, it's like she's wearing a wire and she's just walking down the middle of the street and we see this car behind them. Um, and there's a little bit of a kind of car chase. I think maybe this is meant to be a bit of an allusion to Bullet. Uh, obviously, you know, the most famous kind of car chase set in San Francisco. So, you know, having there's a few of those hills. There's some cars going around. She was driving a Beetle. You know, there's little bits and pieces that you can kind of see as allusions to that. Um, And, you know, the end of it is basically they run into Bill Smoke. He starts, you know, even after he's T-boned, he just keeps shooting. Um, And they run through various parts of downtown San Francisco, uh, including, like, a garment factory. There they meet Duna Bay playing a Mexican woman.
1: (laughs) Oh, I hated that (laughs) so much.
0: Yeah. An interesting choice, I... I guess. I mean
1: it's a different type of yellow
0: face than what i was expecting uh, I mean, yeah i guess i mean it's a it's a, a type of brown face i would say in this particular i don't uh, know they yeah, kind of darkened I the skin so. a bit yeah um so that we know that Loy- uh, bill smoke is an evil person he shoots a dog the dog of course belonging to Bay, identified in the credits for this particular role simply as mexican woman uh she has dual roles in this part though uh because she will appear later as megan's mom uh, where she is in a couple once more with Jim Sturgis, So maybe they fell in love again across time as Megan's dad. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, but it, she kind of gets very angry. Um, and obviously this is where Bill Smoke decides to call her a wetback, which she does not like, because eventually once Bill Smoke has tracked down Louisa and Joe Napier, um, from behind him, um, as he's about to shoot them, here comes the Mexican woman and she smacks him over the head with a giant wrench. And then she keeps beating his head in. So and uh, she's not happy about being called a wetback uh, in that particular case. Um, yeah, once again, another person hit in the head to be killed. Um, and, yeah. So they get the report from Megan Sixsmith. Um, and Hooks is arrested. And that's the end of that segment. Um,
1: so in this, uh, this is another one of those... We're gonna say something or no, or show you something, but not in any way reference it or kind of give it the weight that it's probably worth. And uh, and in this segment, it's we're going to go right past what's obviously kind of like some sort of underground, pr- possibly illegal sweatshop. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. We're just going to ignore it. We're like, oh, um, we're gonna have this incredibly racist uh, sort of, um, h- Hispanic-ish thing happen and then literally just breeze past a bunch of people working in what is clearly a a sweatshop and not talk about it this is the
0: 1970s san francisco sweatshops with like hey don't worry minorities in basically uh i I mean yeah i i it's really weird because it kind of calls to mind the kind of like um 70s cop shows where people would just run through things Obviously the most famous example being, like, cars constantly going through glass or through stacks of, you know, vegetables or whatever. And in this case, just running through a factory where people just continue about their business, not bothered by these strangers running through. So I feel like that's meant to be, a, you know, a reference of some kind. Um, but, yeah, they they don't bother to address it in any real way, do they? They just, yeah. There's a sweatshop right next to where this is happening. I, then, like, this is an investigative reporter that's meant to be standing in this building. She doesn't bother reporting on that. She just, she's like, oh, it's all about the nuclear factory and whatever is going on there.
1: Yeah, she doesn't look around and go, hmm, I'm going to table this for another day. Um, <laughs> she just goes, okay, moving on. Yeah. Nothing to see here, apparently.
0: Yeah. This is the section, I think, with the highest body count as well. Apart from, we'll talk about it once we get to the soul part, <laughs> um, where we get to the, <laughs> the soap factory. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, Bill Smoke is killed. Uh, Isaac Sachs is killed. Rufus Sixsmith is killed. <laughs> A lot of people being killed. But that was the 70s. People were always being killed in the 70s. Look around now. Is there anybody from the 70s still here? No, they're all dead. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm from the 70s, so yes, I, we are still here. Uh, being ignored because we're Gen X. Uh, you know, nobody pays attention to us. Uh, but yeah, so... I mean,
1: Leandra's in her 70s, and she's still
0: here. Yeah. Well.
1: Wait, who? So, you. Me? No. <laughs> Oh, this is one of those things. Okay, Yeah, well, Andrew and I have a running
2: gag where we say that we call each other 70 years old. But
0: anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, how are, we, how are we feeling about this segment? I, I like most of this. You know, I like what Halle Berry's doing. Uh, her and Keith David, you know, I'd love to see, like... You know, again, this could have been a film by itself. You know, if there's a bit more complexity to it. I, I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of um, The Nice Guys. Uh, the kind of main plot line of that is about... The car industry and someone trying to cover something up, and you know, like there's a, there's an element there. So, I was like, if this had been expanded a bit more, this could have been a nice, like, 90 minute cop thing, you know, with her, you know, investigating something. And Keith David I mean, her and Keith David together that's a great couple. Like, you know, I really enjoyed the stuff they would do. I mean, everyone loves Keith David, he's got a great voice, apart from later on in this film, where all of a sudden he's got weird eyes. Um, but yeah, you know, like I thought the two of them really worked together. The little kid, I don't know, I can't, I don't know what the name of the actor is who was playing the little kid, but like obviously, you know, I thought the interactions between her and the kid were kind of funny. Um, you know, uh, Hugh Grant was nice and kind of smarmy. Um, you know, and T- Tom Hanks kind of playing this weirdly love law, you know, he's literally met Harry Berry and fallen in love with her. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you know, like that was, that felt a bit quick, but kind of understandable. And again, the only thing that I didn't really enjoy was the whole stuff with Duna Bay, where I was like, you know, and I'm sure at this point Kelly's gonna be like, "That was Duna Bay. Um. <laughs> um.
2: Yeah. No. I, she. I, she recognized, obviously. <laughs>
0: but yeah. Uh. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I still, for me, I would say, yeah. T. hangs to this part, you know, I enjoyed it. Uh. You know, I thought the ending was a bit quick, but you know, it it, it was it was okay.
1: For me this has everything that a sequel needs to have if I'm thinking about this as kind of the sequel to the previous uh, portion uh it has it has explosions it has chase scenes it has a scrappy urchin who solves the riddle it has um it has casual racism so like <laughs> is it is it better than the original which I'm uh, which I'm calling the the previous portion no but is it an enjoyable little romp, mm, ish. Yeah, I'd give this a T. Hanks.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, I was. I'm gonna give it a no T. Hanks <laughs> because I didn't. I, I felt pretty like neutral and bored by most of it. Yeah. Uh, and that line made me so angry that. <laughs> that it, I mean, it was it was just so stupid that I I I couldn't possibly enjoy it. I the. Car crash slash uh underwater scene was effective for me. Yeah, but apart from that, didn't really. I mean, mostly I was just completely
1: bored by the whole thing. I mean, like... This one was substrate for me. I mean, it was fine.
0: There's a lot of kind of, like, trying to find the MacGuffin of, like, the reports, and we have, like, three different reports in the the space of one segment. Like, it felt like there was a lot of reports going around for something that seemed hard to find.
2: Yeah, and it's not necessarily the movie's fault. Like, if we're treating this segment as, like, um, a self-contained movie, it's not my type of movie. It's not the kind of thing I would ever watch or enjoy, so... Yeah. It's not not fully the movie's fault, but yeah, it it
0: wasn't for me. Well, that brings us into the present day as it was. Although I think when the novel was written in 2004, this was the future. But I think in the novel, this is written in the present day as well. So it's whatever the the present day is, this is meant to be this. But obviously in the film, it's identified as 2012, uh, the Night of the Lemon Prize... Uh, which is a literary prize. Oh, this segment. Yeah, and um, which I'm gonna say this is probably my favourite segment just because I like Jim Broadbent, kind of going all out in this. And we also have Tom Hanks playing like the most offensive Irish stereotype in the entire history of uh, Irish stereotypes. Um, so I just find that. But you know, we're at the we're at the Lemon Prizes, and, and Timothy Cavendish, as played by Jim Broadbent, is a publisher, and he's being harassed by. Uh, Dermot Hoggins which I thought was an odd choice because uh, uh, Dermot is an Irish name but I mean you could just you know go with like a a muck something like you know Hoggins I don't think is even a real name Uh, Higgins is what my notes wanted to correct it to but even then doesn't sound Irish enough for me like let's if you're gonna go with Dermot let's really throw in some you know McCarthy or you know something like that to really Irish it up but you know Tom Hanks is that character, and he is. It feels like he's meant to be like, um, uh, you know, like a character out of like a Guy Ritchie film, who's just like super. I
1: was like, this is a weird iteration of Train Spotting that I didn't want.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, but he's basically like an author who who's written a a book called Knuckle Sandwich, and it has not garnered um, you know, much in the way of critical acclaim and <laughs> dermot hoggins is not happy and expresses this by dropping a number of different expletives within a single sentence about a critic called felix finch uh played by an actor uh alistair petrie who does appear in the other, the, the other sections but not in any kind of prominent roles really um he just kind of makes cameos in the other bits and what dermot obviously feels that he needs to confront. Uh, this particular critic, and so he he gets to like serving trays and smashes them together to make like an announcement. Um, and he he like you know obviously you, Felix Finch is under the impression that he can keep making quips at uh, Dermot Hoggins about Knuckle Sandwich, and he's like you know what are you going to give me you know an unpulped copy of Knuckle Sandwich? I'm sure that's very rare. You know, there's a lot of kind of like you know publishing gags um, and insults, and so of course. Uh, Dermot decides that he's going to take things into his own hands literally when he grabs Felix Finch and walks him over to the balcony and throws him off and his body smashes onto a car below uh, once again somebody dying but n- no no head trauma in this particular one um,
1: not exclusively head trauma no, mo- yes head
0: trauma though yeah but I mean more all over trauma in this particular case Uh, but yeah now with this having happened obviously uh, Dermot is arrested although what I like about Dermot is after he's done this he just goes back to the canopies. he isn't really bothered about the fact that he's just murdered someone in front of everybody Um, and so yeah so uh, this causes Knuckle Sandwich to start selling a lot of copies uh, which you know the money starts to roll in then for um, for Timothy Cavendish and also you know the notoriety starts to attract some new clients um so yeah i mean this is a bold choice for tom hanks a double oscar winner to put on like a bald cap and have some weird facial hair and an accent which can only be casually described as irish and i say that as somebody with irish ancestry by which i mean i literally have an irish passport so yeah i mean I just find it hilarious I don't find it particularly offensive but it's just like a te- like I, I think he's deliberately trying to do a bad accent like the character like he's not taking it seriously at all and that's what I find kind of funny about like Tom Hanks in this he's just like oh yeah I'm going to do an Irish accent but I'm just going to do the worst possible Irish accent that I can think of Um, and this is this is what he came up with
1: it was a choice that was made <laughs> and the best I can say about it is it wasn't a racist choice inherently yeah it was just
0: weird uh it's I should be said as well this is what's weird about this is it this isn't really the the plot of this isn't really about that. This is just the thing that sets up the plot uh when you know um we find out that obviously now that the book is making a lot of money, Dermot wants his cut and he sends around his heavies to get that cut, and they you know, they're like, give us fifty thousand by the end of the week, and so we have it. Then a humorous sequence where um, Jim Broadbent is trying to call in favours or to raise money because he finds out that even though the book has been making a lot of money, he had a ton of debt, and so he's now paying off all the debt rather than actually generating the, generating any income for him. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, we 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 have him where he says he's trying. You know, he calls up someone and he says he's trying to sell like uh, he's he's selling his desk as if it's Charles Dickens' original desk and they're like isn't that in like the Charles Dickens museum and he goes well how about and then he just picks like a different author and <laughs> to pretend that the desk belonged to them so i kind of like i kind of like that that was his like hustle of like just not enough but he's trying to raise 60,000 so obviously he can pay off his debt but then also have some money uh this leads him to his brother played by an extremely evil Hugh Grant uh playing the role here of Denham Cavendish um, and he, you know, he goes to his brother and, like, the first thing Hugh Grant says to him is, don't come here saying that you're asking for money. And obviously he's like, no, of course not, but I do need some money. <laughs> and, um, we then get, like, an exchange of glances between, um, Timothy and Denham's wife Georgette, played here by Ben Whishaw, um, which, again, that's a choice. I don't, she, she says only a couple of words in this particular role, um... And I just thought that was kind of odd. I was like, okay um i it, it kind of becomes a bit clearer as the story progresses as to why they put one of the main characters in this role and they didn't just have like you know just some woman kind of make the cameo. Obviously they wanted to have Ben Wishar there because he's in the main cast, and we want we need to know that this role is not just a kind of small role um um and he suggests. Um, you know, going to this particular place. He's like, here's a place you can go to. It'll be safe. I'll pay for it. So, you know, you can hide from these people. And so he kind of goes to drive there. But it's near um, his old flame, um, Ursula, uh, who he lost his virginity to when he thought... he his par- The parents were out of town. He calls them the Mater and Pater. Which is something, I mean, I've known uh, people in this country of a certain class and they do have a tendency to call their parents Mater and Pater and I don't know why they do it. Um, but I thought that was a nice detail, that that's what he would have called them. As he jumps out of bed, you know, fully naked, he holds the cat in front of his genitals and the cat does not like this, uh, which I thought was quite a funny thing, and then he ends up, like, jumping out of the window fully naked. Um, he goes back to that house and he sees that Ursula is there. Ursula being played by Susan Sarandon, and the weirdest thing is, Susan Sarandon, of course, looks beautiful. And Jim Broadbent does not look like he's the same generation as Susan Sarandon. So, I mean, it feels a bit generous to think that they were young lovers. Um, but, of course, because it's Susan Sarandon, you know that that character is not just going to be nothing. So you're like, oh, you know, you're you then on Oaks waiting for the return of Susan Sarandon in this segment. Um... But it will take a while. In the film, I think it's almost you know almost near the end of the film before she actually returns. Um, but we find out that the hotel he has checked into the next morning when he's interrupted by Hugo Weaving playing Nurse Noakes um, again, an evil character, and again you know uh, playing a different gender, um, a, a, an interesting choice. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I I, I particularly I'm not I'm not really that bothered by Hugo Weaving playing like a Nurse Ratchet type character. You know, I, I think the idea is that he is the constant evil that is in all these people's lives, so it makes sense that he is this evil nurse that is tormenting Jim Broadbent, who, when he wakes up in the morning, realises that he's basically signed away all his rights and he's now living in a um, an old person's home, him, which he was unaware of doing the previous night when he signed in and there was, like, no one there. He just thought he was signing a hotel registry. Um... You know, And obviously now he basically can't escape. He says the line, I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. And that line is repeated in the, the sequence that is set in 2144 by Tom Hanks playing this role, playing the role of um, Timothy Cavendish, uh, which is kind of interesting. Because the way that Tom Hanks delivers it is completely... Like he's kind of with a certain level of dignity and he kind of leaves... And Jim Broadbent is just yelling at the top of his lungs and his, uh I just thought that was kind of interesting. Like a nice little contrast because we've already seen uh due to the structure of the film, we've already seen those words come from Tom Hanks' mouth. So when, you know, when it's actually said by Timothy Cavendish in the present, it's kind of funny that he doesn't quite have the same level of dignity. Um he does throw out a kind of Easter egg as he's trying to escape on the first, you know, the first morning that he's there, he does start saying Sonic Green is people a few times. And obviously, if you've not seen the film Sonic Green*, spoiler alert for that. Uh, but also, this is a <laughs> reference to something that will happen later on in the film as well. So, um,
2: yeah, I I thought this was one of the clumsier references.
0: Comes out <laughs> of nowhere as well. He just starts yelling Sonic yeah. Green* is people. Yeah, yeah I mean, me.
2: when it initially happened, it kind of um, it kind of made me smile because it made me think of like, you know, when, like the early days of the Simpsons, they used to reference that line a lot. My dad used to reference it a lot when it came to, like, when it came to, like, big twists in movies and stuff. So I was like, oh, that's kind of fun, and I could see somebody of his generation just yelling that out, like kind of a weird, uh, weird uncle character like him. But then, uh, then when I realized what it was supposed to be, tying in yeah. to later in the movie i was
3: like that was <laughs> i'm gonna
2: say lazy <laughs> yeah i
0: think when i saw it at the cinema i didn't really notice it because i you know it was just like jim broadbent yelling random things um but when i was rewatching it i was like oh right okay that's feels a bit obvious um but yeah uh we find out from a phone call to denim uh which he's annoyed to get because he didn't you know, he, he knows that the rules of this place are that you residents can't make phone calls. <laughs> that Actually, this was deliberate. Uh, Denham basically owns, co-owns this place, or, you know, is an investor or something, so he owns a few old people's homes, um, and he sent him there deliberately, knowing that he would just sign his life away <laughs> and not realise what was going on. And now, of course, he can't escape because, you know, he effectively has no rights. And, you know, this was because he had an affair... With uh, his wife, Georgette, as played by Ben Whishaw. Um so yeah, that is obviously why Ben Whishaw is there as the as the wife, so that we we get the idea that she is kind of a major part of this storyline. Um, but we find out there is a small gang of people who wish to escape from this place, including Mister Meeks, who just says "I know, I know" over and over again <laughs> like a parrot, and they are planning to escape. They have they have an idea of how to do it, but I think they needed a fourth person to kind of do this. You know, somebody who wanted to escape, and obviously they've seen in his random yelling and trying to escape that he wants to escape, so he's he's you know suitable to kind of do this. Um, And they come up with a plan, which is they will call someone and tell them that their mother has died or is dying, and this will cause them to come to the home uh, in their car. They will steal that car and use that car to get out, taking you know all three of them. Uh, not Mr. Meeks, uh, because apparently he just keeps saying the words I know and they don't know what his full intentions are, they don't know if he understands stuff. It's then revealed as they're trying to trap um, Nurse Noakes in the room of Tiffany Cavendish by saying that he's died. There's a lot of people saying other people have died in this p- in this particular plan. Um, that Actually, he can say more than those two words <laughs> and he's like, he wants to go with them. Uh, and it turns out later it is fortunate that they took Mr. Meeks um but yeah, I liked this sequence where like this these kind this kind of this concerned couple kinda of came to see their mother in the middle of the night, um, and the kind of the the way that they orchestrate Nurse Nokes being trapped in uh his room as, as he kind of locks her in. Um and then they kind of run off. And when they get in the car, because obviously they are old people and it is twenty twelve, they don't understand how to operate a car that doesn't have just a normal key you put in the ignition, <laughs> and so they're kind of fumbling about trying to figure that out. And then the people, you know, the, the couple come back out along with a nurse and the, the groundskeeper guy who kind of um, got Jim Bro bent back in when he tried to escape the first time. And I did kind of like the interactions between them as they're trying to figure out how on earth you start this car before they realise there's a button that's just labelled start, and you can press that, and then off you go. But I do also like the fact that they like they they think that the keys have been taken. And then he's, like, checking the sun visor, and he pops it down. And the the keys fall down, but the keys aren't the keys. They're just the thing to unlock the, you know, the engine so that you can start it. So I thought that was quite funny that, like, the keys were never taken, but they think they were. And there's a whole thing about that. Um, yeah. So they find out how to start the car, and then it looks like they're going to run everybody over. But they reverse out, and then they see Mr. Meeks. So they come back in, and they drive across the grass, and they pick him up. And when they say, you know, get in, Mr. Meeks, he says, I know, I know. Um, And they escape to the local pub because, of course, if you're in England and you escape from an old person's home, then a pub is the first place where you would head. Um, And in the background, you know, a rugby game is taking place between England and Scotland. And um, this is not called attention to until we see uh, like a minivan arrive with the nurse and a couple of the staff. And they go in and, you know, obviously within the nursing home, Nurse Noakes is basically the, you know, the kind of the law there. Um, I should say as well, James Darcy is also, along with Hugo Weaving and Ben are cross-dressing in this particular sequence because he plays Nurse James. Um, and they're there to pick them up. And then Mr Meeks stands on top of the table <laughs> and asks if there's any true Scotsman in the pub. And he says that these people are English and they're trying to kidnap them. And this, of course, then with um, uh, Jim Sturgis, is the first to throw the first punch. And he punches, um, I think it's Nurse Noakes uh, or one of the other guys, and knocks the tooth out. And it goes fly a CGI tooth goes flying into the pint of beer. And that starts an all out fight where basically this allows Jim Broadbent and his co conspirators to escape. Uh, we find out later on that Jim Broadbent. He has run away from everything, he's not in England anymore, he's somewhere else, and he's writing his life story, which of course will become a screenplay, which will be turned into a film, which we will see in the next section, and he has managed to also get back together with the the love of his life, Ursula, and we see see Susan Sarandon there. She doesn't say a word in the sequence, she just looks happy, Um, and that is where his story ends. Um, but yeah, I like the fact that the way to to kind of stop them from being kidnapped and taken back to the home is to basically just say, "Look, there's a bunch of Englishmen," and have all the Scots beat them up, which was just a very a very effective move by Mr. Meeks.
1: So this segment reminds me of. Um, back when I was in high school, I used to, uh, I used to go to this art house uh, for films, and uh, and it was pretty much always like indie darling sorts of uh, cinema. And to me, this is the one segment that seems like that kind of. Um, goofy indie film uh, that would do really well at a festival um, and get like criti- uh, critically acclaimed because it's Jim Broadbent being a cute old guy and having cute old guy shenanigans uh, and uh, I wouldn't necessarily love it but I-, I could see it doing well with an audience if it was just this one segment as its own film
0: yeah I would say... What's weird is this kind... Like the... Literally like... Um, a couple of years before this... There was a film that... Um, Jim Broadbent did with Mike Lee... Called Another Year... Um, which I think takes place like... Over the, the course of like... Four... Seasons... Um, and as with most... Mike Lee stuff... It is you know... An idea and then all the actors... Kind of like... You know... Improvise and kind of come up with stuff... And... yes and well not just yes and but they literally spend months coming up with character backstory Um, in fact in that case i think it was five months that they spent coming up with the characters and how they knew each other and why they knew each other and all that kind of stuff Um, and in that he plays i i mean i didn't i i saw the trailer like i don't know a dozen two dozen times it was like always on and i i can't say i ever fully got the grasp of what the story was um but there was a lot of like Jim Broadbent and Ruth Sheen and Leslie Manville just kind of smiling at each other over tables and talking and you know sitting in allotments and stuff and yeah this this the, like this segment feels like that it feels like a Mike Lee film <laughs> very briefly although it kind of ends up getting a bit more cartoony with the escape and stuff um but you know it, it does feel kind of more like the indie part of the film which is uh which is kind of interesting um but yeah i mean uh, Kelly how did you feel about Jim the the kind of the the antics of Jim Broadbent's, uh, you know, ill-fated publisher and his escape from the old person's home.
2: So, I actually loved this one. I thought it was... I, I I liked how it was kind of farcical. Um, and I also just... I kind of like... I mean, the idea of being trapped in a place like that is, is one of the, like, horror thriller concepts that always really affects me I don't know it's kind of like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or something like that you know Um, and actually Nurse Snooks is pretty clearly supposed to be like a Nurse Ratchet character unfortunately I found the fact that Hugo Weaving was playing Nurse Snooks to be extremely offensive (laughs) but um but apart from that I, I love, like you said Jim Broadbent was a treasure in it and it was fun
0: I mean, I like. I, I mean, I don't know why. Why did you find it so so bad for Hugo Weaving to be their character? I kind of understood why they went in that direction because he is meant to be like the ever-present evil in all of these kind of segments. Um,
2: well, yeah, but I I don't think it's a great look to be like because there was quite a bit of like. Like how mannish and like you know, off-putting this woman is. I don't know. It it doesn't have great implications for trans people. Yeah, uh, that's the main thing. It, it was kind of like evil Mrs. Doubtfire and carrying the same kind of unfortunate uh, stereotypes that Mrs. Doubtfire carries. Yeah. Um, I can see that. And then on top of that, it's just I don't know. <laughs> but I, I agree that having him be the evil character in every storyline was an interesting choice.
0: I mean, I feel like maybe they. Could, I mean, the would have it. What would I mean? What difference would it made if he'd have just been a male nurse? Like uh, exactly. You know. I mean, yeah.
2: honestly, was a if, because this was yeah. 2012, and there was a little bit of. Although it's interesting that it was the. No, it was the Wachowskis, but that's just how I feel. I mean, even when it's not, even when it's not intentional, it has implications.
0: They weren't directing this part. I definitely the didn't.
2: I definitely didn't need the broom handle joke. You
0: know? Yeah. Yeah, uh, th- but this part isn't directed but, by them. This is the last part that uh, the Tom Tequay was directing. So, maybe they had slightly less involvement. Okay. I mean,
2: I guess they didn't have any... I mean, I
0: think it's balanced a little bit by the fact that Ben Wisher is just Georgette and there's no commentary made on it. The fact that it's Ben Wisher. Like, it's just, he's playing a woman and that's it. Like, there's no. So. Yeah, you know. I
1: didn't even. Catch yeah, I'll admit that I didn't realize that until you said <laughs> it enough. Yeah. That was me going, <laughs> What? I'm going to let Kelly be the, be the one and that you know, does I, that. I, I'm going to,
2: just for the listeners, I'm going to. Um. To just defend myself a little bit in that I haven't gotten new glasses in
3: seven
2: <laughs> years or gotten my eyes tested, and my glasses are so scratched up that my eyesight basically right now is really, really bad. Okay. So, yeah. Um. So part of it is that part of it is that I'm like a dog and like a wig can trick me, <laughs> but you know.
0: I mean, not yet. But they didn't really like focus too much on George yet. They just made it clear that like you know she was a character that was going to play a part in the story. So.
2: No, you're yeah. right, and that makes a good point. I, mean, I, I, I like. I don't think there was any. I don't think there was any intent yeah. of that type. Yeah. I think they
0: just wanted to do a kind of a version of Nurse Ratchet, and they wanted to use Hugo Weaving. Yeah. In the film. Uh, I. Sh- yeah. It, it, that's
2: that's definitely. Yeah. So. I I think the, the
0: execution could have been done a bit better, but yeah. Um, I think it's interesting as well. You know, uh, Hugh Grant when he was cast, I think he was only cast for like five parts of the film and he liked the script so much he was like can i have another role uh so i think i i don't think he was meant to be Denham cavendish in this in this part i think that was just going to be another actor who was kind of roughly jim braw bent's age so that's why they've kind of just put him in old man makeup and had him be his like brother um you know because just because he wanted another part and i think they were like well yeah he can work as you know as this as this particular person as like Denham cavendish um, so again, like, at n- n- no point is Hugo Grant playing a good person in any, in any of these. And in the next part, I mean, you know, obviously, how bad could it get with Hugo Weaving? Well, here we are in the year 2144, and we're in Neo's Soul. And, uh, yeah, we've got everybody, the gang's all here, apart from Ben Wishaw, who sensibly seems to have decided not to take part in this, in this part of it. Um, and, um the main character is played by Duna bay who you know uh looks beautiful um you know the idea is that she is playing i'm gonna have to get the the term correct because a fabricant there we go not a not a replicant that's blade runner uh but it may as well be but yeah she's a fabricant yeah <laughs> um but yeah so we have we have a fabricant and um you know she is uh somni uh 451 uh, she is asked by the archivist, who is played by James Darcy, looking Korean, um, to describe her life. Uh, is he there? <laughs> and she's she's basically a fast food server, and um, we see. I mean, we. I mean, it's it's implied that she's also a sex worker um, from the actions yeah. of some of the other um, replicants, fabricants. Um, and she, you know, she talks about how she wakes up at like five in the morning after her revival. Um, she goes to the hygina, which is just like a, you know, a kind of futuristic shower. Um, they work for 19 hours. <laughs> uh, they get to have one juice box, which they call a substack, uh, and then they go back into the sleep box. And if they are lucky, they are picked for exaltation. And we see everybody putting on robes and clapping as this one person leaves. For exultation. If you've seen any science it was at fiction, this point, yeah,
1: <laughs> that I started screaming, renew, 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 and um, I was fairly drunk at that point. And mind you, that happens at the beginning of the film. Yeah, so.
0: yeah. So I mean, yeah. I mean, like we see that obviously, you know, a theme that's been throughout this film we haven't really touched too much upon, apart from the first segment, was obviously the idea of slavery. Um, you know Frobisher was kind of trapped you know in, and kind of had to escape by shooting Ayers um, you know there's a, a, there's not really kind of much of a slavery thing in, in you know the San Francisco part apart from the fact that maybe some of the people who were working for the you know Sixth Fifth maybe he's trapped in that job and he's got nowhere to go and no one to love and you know so he's kind of stuck you know Cavendish is sick, effectively the old person's home functioned as a prison so, <laughs> so everyone was trapped there and now we have this character of Sonmi four five one who is effectively trapped in this job and just basically uh goes to sleep, wakes up, has a bit of food, does her job, and then repeats that endlessly. Um, we also see that there is another kind of clone who looks just like her, and um once we get to when she escapes we see that later on there is somebody who is like a prostitute who also looks like her. So, you know, um, most obviously with the you know there's she's not the only one in this restaurant in fact this restaurant is extremely overstocked like there's like 15 different people serving and there's only like six tables so, <laughs> so it feels like there's too many um of these fabricants in this particular restaurant uh really for it to function but you know uh the the seer um who runs it is Sia ri played by Hugh Grant uh, in Korean makeup uh <laughs> and, Um, he, uh, we, we, like, one of the mornings Sunmi is woken up when she sees Yuna 939 and she is having sex with the seer. Um, obviously he has woke her up for that purpose, but there is an implication that obviously outside of this restaurant, outside of the restaurant hours, you know, they're up for 19 hours, that they are doing things other than just serving people food. Um, you know, but, uh, we, we kind of see that, you know, um, Yuna939 has got like a little kind of TV watch type thing and she's watching the story of Cavendish where he says the line in particular, um, uh, I will not be subjected to criminal abuse Um, and one of the days we see some of the the people who are visiting a restaurant, a fellow stands behind her and pretends to ejaculate with mustard on her back. And she's not happy at this, so she, like, punches him. And then she tries to escape using, like, his access to the lift that gets her to the outside world. Um, but, of course, Hugh Grant activates a button on a on her collar and it's you know, hits her in the carotid artery and she just bleeds out and dies. Um, so we see the power that uh, he has over her. Um, as this is all happening, we get to meet uh, Heiju Chang um chang not really being a korean surname but you know i guess it's close enough uh because it's being played by jim sturgis um um who for the third time is somebody who is falling in love with duna bay so that i mean i guess you kind of forgive it for that if that's the theme but really we didn't get to meet megan's mom and dad much and you know the adam ewing Tilda ewing thing didn't really last for more than a couple of minutes on screen so it's a bit of a reach um, but he is going to be the kind of second main character in this, this whole section. As he tries to break her out, um, he goes to a doctor, uh, played by Halle Berry, to take off the, the neck thing. And uh, the two of them then go back to his place, where she manages to watch the full film of the events that we've just seen in the previous segment. Um, uh, the haunting... something what is it called? The haunting experience or something like that? Of um timothy cavendish uh but it's basically him escaping from the old person's home um except you know instead of seeing a small clip she now gets to see the whole film she gets to watch the news she gets to see the outside world basically um and unfortunately for them the authorities have caught up with him and so we get i mean i guess this sequence is probably one of the more well known from the film where he has this little kind of bridge that he can kind of make um, using I don't know how it it's just like a fancy futuristic bridge and he kind of clips it onto the window and it kind of extends out and they both try to escape over it uh, whilst being shot at um, he falls off the bridge and she is caught um, and I think yeah this is the first time she's caught she'll get caught a lot in this film I tell you as it keeps going backwards and forwards she keeps escaping and getting caught so she gets caught and she's going to be questioned uh, we see uh, Hugo Weaving playing Boardman Mephi. And he is very Korean, and, <laughs> and he is questioning whether or not all the Sun Mees should be killed because they are defective. Because you know she tried to escape, um, as she's going to be taken to her death. Uh, one of the members of the squad that is taking her turns out to be Hei Ju Cheng. He didn't die, and he shoots all the other guards <laughs> and frees her, um, and they escape a second time. Um, uh, after escaping the second time, I think this is when they have sex um and they also get to meet uh Angkor Apis who is played by Keith David in Korean makeup um and he is the leader of the rebellion against all the using of you know these fabricants to serve everybody um basically the slave class that has been uh kind of made up and then we get the revelation which for anybody who's ever seen any science fiction films is kind of obvious Um, (laughs) we see, again, the exaltation, um, ceremony, but this time from the other side, where as the person is led out, they're like, oh, just go through this door, and they put a little thing on their head, and it obviously stuns them by killing them in the brain, and they lie them down, and then they get dragged out, um, onto this kind of conveyor belt abattoir type arrangement, where all these bodies are kind of being moved, these dead bodies are being moved around, until they eventually end up being turned into what is ter- what is called soap, uh, which is the food that is given to them at the start of each day. And it turns out, you guessed it, cyanide Green is people, soap is fabricants. Um, and Sonmi is obviously not happy about that. She says the line, um, they fed us to ourselves. Um, to kind of make it explicit to the audience what is happening. You know. Um, uh, yeah how do we feel about this up until this point (laughs) because I'm breezing through it but like there's a lot of segments where we keep bouncing backwards and forwards and Sonmi keeps getting caught and keeps getting out uh, and you know there's a lot of people turning up with their eyes looking like they shouldn't
1: hate this (laughs) hate all of this to if there was a thing that I liked I can't remember it the thing that I uh, that I hated the most was the fact that I watched it (laughs)
2: Yeah, I just, it was, like, it was, like, the most, like, generic and simple sci-fi plot. Yeah. You know? So, it, it was so nothing. Yeah. It, like, it could have been, like, an episode of a cartoon. It was so simple, and...
0: Yeah, it's just basically like, here is a futuristic slave, and it turns out they're eating the dead slaves who think they're going to heaven, but it turns out heaven is just an abattoir on the other side of the door. And that's the entire At plot.
1: At least Snowpiercer did it better.
0: <laughs> At least everything did it better, basically. I I think it's interesting as well, because it seems to... like I mean, obviously there's a point where Heiju Chang and Sonmi 451 have sex, uh, which is which is counterpointed by Frobisher and six myths smashing up stuff in the china shop and i'm like it feels weird because i'm sure that because he was the one who set her free she would feel some kind of obligation and there's a power dynamic there where it's like he set her free like three times at this point and it's like is she only engaging in this intercourse because he keeps setting her free and she can't she can't go anywhere else if she goes to the outside world she's going to get caught and put back uh, either you know, back to her job, or she's going to be killed. So effectively, she has she has nowhere else to go but to be with him, and it feels like maybe he's exploiting that situation to have sex with her. Although, uh, you know there there is a there is a level of consent in the film, but it just feels a bit weird. It's like, you know,
2: yeah, no, yeah, there's an uncomfortable paradigm. Yeah. your savior can't um, be your
1: boyfriend. Ever.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, I also, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't as bad as it sometimes is, but I did think there was a little bit of born sexy yesterday with this, you
3: know? Yeah, yeah.
2: Which is, previous listeners will remember me complaining a lot about this during Splash, but (laughs) uh, (laughs) it was not as bad as Splash, but that is one of my least favorite tropes, and one of the favorite tropes of Many make science fiction movies, apparently. So, I mean,
0: there was also an element of this that is, um, you know, the fact that it, like, it is, uh, you know, set in an Asian country, and there is, like, the kind of, you know, the exotic Asian is also kind of in there as well as a cliche, and, like, the fact that Duna Bay, like, she, I mean, she has, like, a, a strip of colored hair that she, like, kind of cuts out to show that she's no longer a slave but then she, the only person she is spending any time with is the person who set her free and you're like i mean d- like doesn't feel like this is really a, a an equal relationship um you know and also you know she then finds out all her friends have been turned into her food
2: well i mean that's the, the i mean that's basically the crux of, of the Born sexy yesterday thing it's like I'm so in
0: love with you. Granted, you're basically the only person I've ever known. But, you know. Yeah. Um, Sonmi tells her story to everybody in the entire world. Um, and, you know, that basically Sonu Green is people. Um, but she gets caught again. Uh, everybody else gets killed. Um, she uses the phrase womb to tomb, which is also in West Side Story. Um... So I was like, that's. I mean, I was like, that's just weird. Like the, she's using that phrase. Um, she talks about how death is only a door to the archivist, um, and he's like, okay. And then she goes off and she's killed. <laughs> 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 Let's go through the door then. Um, but yeah, I mean, the whole death of the door thing is also. I think it, is intercut in the film with the death of Frobisher as well and you know so the it, it, i think it's weird because like the frobisher stuff is very much intercut with the the stuff from soul and i think it makes the soul stuff a little like gives it a bit more weight but when you kind of just think about the stuff that happens in soul by itself you're like uh, she escapes she gets caught she escapes she gets caught she escapes and tells her story to the world she gets caught she gets killed it's like it all happens within the space of two days it's like very quick um, that she finds out the truth. And also, I mean, I guess, you know, the fabricants aren't thinking about anything else other than their jobs, so, you know, they don't think about how this exaltation thing could be them being killed. But to, as a viewer, it feels so obvious, you're like, it, it's kind of annoying it takes two and a half hours to get to it. I mean, yeah, this is the part of the film that's just painful. to it's, I mean, I guess it's not so bad when it's being intercut, but if you think about it all at once, you're like, no, I would prefer not to watch this part of the film. <laughs> And also, I mean, you know, that and that's not on Duna Bay because I think she does a really good job. And you know, when she kind of, when she kind of realizes what's going on with the whole, you know, the whole exaltation thing, and realizing that you know all her friends that she thought were going to a better place are all actually being killed and fed to her, you know, she sheds a tear and it is a very emotional moment. But it just feels a bit flat because you're like, why does everybody else have weird makeup? And it, particularly like Hugo Weaving, like again, you know, he's got to be there as the ever-present evil, apparently, but it's like. This is considering what's going to happen in the final part of this. It, it's it's weird that this is the weirdest part. Like you know the fact that like he's in yellow face is just the oddest thing in the entire film. Like um you know for the others for like Hugh Grant he's only in for like a couple of minutes before his character's killed off. Um you know um and that you know the same for you know Jim Broadbent's only briefly there for a few seconds you barely even notice him and, and you know Jim Sturgis... I guess it's not so bad, you kinda get used to it over the course of like the whole film. But Hugo Weaving just does not look right. And Keith David. You are like what have they done to Keith David? Like he could have just been a black guy in Korea. He doesn't need to be Korean. (laughs) It's just another thing. Like, there are black people who live in Korea Mm. who aren't Korean. It's it's a thing that happens. Yeah. Let alone in the future. Yeah. yeah. Let alone in the year twenty one forty four. But then we return to what starts the film and what finishes the film, which is the story of Zachary, a man who talks mostly gibberish um and we find out his story uh, you know is kind of again like uh, we're in the very, very far future, a uh, hundred and six years after the fall, you know so something's happened we're in Hawaii, which can't be bad uh but we see that <laughs> I don't know, Hugh Grant is playing the Kona chief, which is like a Hawaiian part, but it's just he's just got face paint on. He's not trying to be a different race. So, um, But he killed um, Zachary's brother, Adam, played by Jim Sturgis, um, which of course obviously that was the name of his character in the first segment as well, Adam Ewing. So bringing it back around. Um, but he's only in it for like two minutes before he gets killed and his, his, his kid gets killed. And that's obviously something that haunts um, the character of Zachary. Uh, not spelt correctly, spelt Zach, R-Y. Um, uh, he is haunted by old Georgie, uh, as played by Hugo Weaving, in a lot of face paint. Um, and he kind of runs this small village between himself and the abbess, played by Susan Sarandon. Uh, he's got a, few, a couple of kids, um, and they are visited by uh, Merinim, played by Halle Berry, who is like a person who's on a spaceship, um, or she's on like a boat, that kind of sails on the water like a spaceship like floats above it like a very advanced hovercraft um and they're trying to contact people from the colonies who've left earth because apparently something bad happened on earth and people left and they've set up colonies in space but they need to communicate with them and she needs to be taken to a place by uh zachary and you know they reluctantly negotiate and she kind of agrees after meronim uses her kind of current technology to save a child who's got like a big foot a big inflated foot and she's got the technology to stop that so she does um they go for a walk over some cliffs again this is kind of intercut with stuff we don't there's not really much narrative in terms of it's just them going to somewhere um uh, but obviously you know all the time uh, old georgie is haunting zachary um and occasionally they will talk about stuff in a language that makes very little sense, but sometimes if they want to know that something is the truth, they will refer to it as the true true, and it is extremely annoying. Um Every time they say <laughs> true true, you can't handle the true true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: ended up me that last
0: night. And a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, he he obviously knows the the you know you know the the layout of Hawaii, so he he's taken it to this specific place. Once they get there. um you know, they go up a cliff, uh, which has this... Actually, when they are going up the cliff, there's this funny thing where Hugo Weaving is at a 90-degree angle to the cliff. And I thought that was quite funny. You know, to kind of embody his fear as this guy who's basically um, doing like an Adam West in the old Batman series of just being at a complete 90-degree angle. I just thought it was really funny. I was like... I don't know, it's kind of silly. They end up in a place that is kind of... It's not it's obviously not, you know, Neo Soul, but it is connected to Neo Soul in some way. It has the archives from there. And we see the story of Sonmi and we find out, um, as this segment goes on, that Zachary effectively sees Sonmi as some kind of god, um, and that they worship her. Um and they will also say stuff like, you know, Praise Sonmi or thanks Sonmi <laughs> quite regularly. Um and, you know, they see some some of the archives of her kind of talking uh, about, you know, what her life was like. But they I mean I guess they kind of they kind of can't understand it because it's in proper English and they're talking nonsense language, so they kind of sort of understand what she's saying. Um and then old Georgie is like angry, uh, you know, that that somebody is trying to fill his head with lies and he says, uh, kill <laughs> and he, like seems a bit extreme. And we see him getting a knife out over the course of a couple of segments, um, but he doesn't uh kill her and they end up sending a message to somebody because this dish forms um but then when they get back to where Tom Hanks's tribe lives we find that it's all in flames again a kind of cliche of like you know you return home and your entire you know your village has been ransacked and everything's on fire why would you just ransack it why do you need to keep setting stuff on fire anyway uh we see that uh, the leader of the tribe uh, as played by Hugh Grant is um you know lying in in his home i think because he's eaten a bunch of people and he's you know obviously very full up um, so Tom Hanks takes this chance to cut his throat. <laughs> again. He doesn't stab him in the head, which I would have liked. Just a, a simple cutting of the throat. But, you know, again, more head head trauma. Um, he finds that one of his children has hidden in, in one of the, the kind of makeshift closets. But then we hear the tribe coming back uh, looking for their chief. Um, and a fight ensues where um, Zachary gets his eye cut. Um, and Halle Berry shoots everybody with lasers. Uh and I think that's pretty much it. <laughs> uh, a boat comes. Uh, the Prescience, which is the kind of the, the futuristic people, come to pick Merinim up. And he decides to leave with Merinim. Uh We get to the end of the film and we find out that, you know, the old man from the beginning is Zachary. And he's telling the story of how he met, um, you know, Halle Berry and how they got together and had a ton of kids and a ton of grandkids that he's now telling bedtime stories to. Uh, they want more bedtime stories. But he's like, no, 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 you've all got to go to sleep. Um, and then he says to Halle Berry as he's walking up to the house that she was the best thing that ever happened to him, and that's where the film ends, um, and that's where this segment ends. I mean, I, like I don't know how much is there is to say about this futuristic segment because aside from the like weird speech, uh, like uh, you know, it is kind of like a lot of just walking about, and you know, a lot of Hugo weaving popping up from behind things to kind of stare at Tom Hanks and be like three inches away from his face. <laughs> And, and, you know, this is kind of... This is Tom Hanks' section. It's really weird because, obviously, he's done a lot in the previous sections, you know. And this is, again, the second time he's fallen in love with, um, with Halle Berry in the film. Um, You know, but, like... And I guess his character from, you know, from being the, like, evil Dr. Henry Goose at the start... To, you know, the hotel manager who was extorting Ben Wishaw To the person who fell in love with Harry Berry and then blew up on an aeroplane you know to dermot huggins throwing a guy over a balcony and then playing like an actor in neo soul who was a version of timothy cavendish like his character seems to have been kind of redeemed as the film goes on from being completely evil to being completely good you know somebody who saw his own brother and his niece murdered and you know he's now you know he isn't really meant to interact with meronim You know, uh, he makes a joke about how everybody, like, pretends that they know what she's talking about when she's talking about, like, fusion engines, (laughs) which I thought was funny. Uh, But, like, this is the part of the film that, like, he's trying, you know, Tom Hanks is carrying. And, I mean, it kind of works, but, like, it doesn't feel like, you know, they go to a cliff and turn on a dish and then come back home and everybody's been killed and then they kill the other tribe. It's not a hugely complex part of the the film, you know. Uh, And, again, like, the language just makes it really weird. Um... Like in terms of like trying to understand what's going on on screen, and again, like a lot of it, you just kind of have to into it after a while, and you're like, oh, I guess they're talking about that. But you know, without rewinding the film a hundred times, I don't think you're gonna fully confirm everything that they're saying in every segment. Like I say, it probably works better on the page where you can kind of get used to reading what they're saying. Um, but yeah, the, like some of the, the, I think the early parts of this are a bit of a struggle. But I like the stuff once they get to the end and they're like killing everybody, and she's like shooting people with lasers and stuff. I thought that bit was fun you know and it's nice that they kind of fall in love and have grandkids but like the, the first part of it just feel it really slows down the, like this and you know the, the kind of the soul stuff like the, the stuff that they put at the beginning of the film from those parts of the story really slows the first hour down and then it gets a bit more interesting towards the end of the film how are we feeling about
3: yeah.
0: Tom Hanks as future man speaking weird words
1: Kelly do you want to go first <laughs> I don't think I'm going to shock
2: anybody. I thought this was so stupid and so boring. I hated
1: every moment that I spent in this world. It took me such a long time to understand what they were trying to go for with uh with that lefricon. And and even now mm-hmm. I hate it. Like just because I understand it doesn't mean that I like it.
2: It may be a bad sign that I was over halfway through the movie when I turned to Brad and said, wait, is this supposed to be way in the past or way in the future? I thought like, they were going for that. Yeah. Well, I guess I thought that it was supposed to be more clear that it was the postal post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic future um, it does say that
0: at the beginning and identifies me. it, it says like 160 yeah. years after the event, but again that could be, like
2: oh, okay, I guess this would be a good time to mention to viewers that I accidentally downloaded a version of the film where all of the like,
1: subtitles or like um, any text. text on screen was in Russian <laughs> I I indeed <laughs> noticed that but yeah. my subtitles that I that I was using, um, it but it also explained what was on the screen, because they were like, oh, this might be in Russian, <laughs> just
3: so you're aware yeah. this,
1: it says so this. This happens to be in Russian,
0: yeah. Yeah, funnily enough, you can find this film on YouTube, somebody just uploaded the whole film. In, on Blu-ray. Just oh. search for Cloud Atlas. It's on YouTube. At the moment, as I record this, but you know, somebody might take that down at some point in the future. I didn't think you could get away with doing that on YouTube. Just uploading a whole film. Um,
2: I mean, you can't just like if they they will remove it if they find it but i just don't know if anybody's scouring cloud Atlas, <laughs> scouring youtube for cloud atlas uploads at this yeah.
0: point um yeah i mean I, I, like i think the idea of i mean it, again it's uh, you know it's kind of like a, a cliched idea of like the the future is the same as the past like if once the once everything goes wrong we all become like primitive people that idea again is just a cliche uh, and i'm not sure that the is in these in these segments are really offering anything different You know, and, like, they're they're infatuated with Hugo Weaving because he's in everything they've done. (laughs) So, apart from Bound, I don't think he's in Bound. But, like, you know, they like Hugo Weaving, so they keep sticking him in stuff, and in this case, they're just just having him as this imaginary evil person. And I'm like, okay, but, yeah, it takes a while in the film before you realise he's not actually there and he's just part of... You know, I think when he's 90 degrees on a cliff, then you're like, oh, so this guy's not real. Uh, But up until that point, it's 50-50, really. Um, But, yeah, I don't really... I mean, I think kind of towards the end, Tom Hanks kind of gets into a groove as into what he's doing with his character. So that kind of makes sense. Um, but, uh, you know, I it, like, it It just... It, the, the whole first hour of the film is slowed down every single time they go to Seoul or any time they go to this. And you really want to kind of stay with Frobisher or you want to stay with Cavendish. Like, you know, there's parts of the film where you're like, oh, I want to see what happens with that. And then... We keep having to jump to the very distant future where someone's talking about the true true, and I'm like, uh, I don't need this. Uh, uh, this is not really that compelling. What are we doing here? Um, and I mean, I think it's an okay way to end the film where they're like, you know, we're looking, we're we're not on Earth anymore. We're looking at Earth in the sky, and I think that's you know that's a nice thing. But uh, you know, unfortunately, even Tom can't kind of save whatever's going on with this part. You know, he was more compelling as like a Irish gangster throwing people off a a building than he is as this kind of like grandfather telling a a, a story. Not that but the fact that you see him at the beginning of the film with like you know, looking like he's on castaway and then we see a younger version of him and you like you don't feel like he's in danger. Oh, this other tribe has killed everything, you know, all of his 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 family and everything. But we know he's gonna be an old man, so there's no real danger there. Like there's no tension. You know, like he kills he slits Hugh Grant's throat, which is satisfying, but like it doesn't matter about the fact that the tribe are coming to find him because they're not going to kill him. We know because he ends up as an old man. So it feels like a bit flabby in terms of like the story. Um, you know, For a film that's three hours, you've really got to earn those three hours and I think there's at least 45 minutes an hour of this that you could probably cut out a little bit of and you wouldn't really miss it. You know, If we had a couple less jumps to the future, I think the film would be a bit better.
1: And this segment also suffers from having... Um, maybe not racist makeup, but bad makeup. Um, yeah. There's a lot of, uh, and honestly, some of it is racist. But um, just the even the, the even the stuff that isn't supposed to uh, be. I am a a native of uh, of this island sort of look. Um, Susan Sarandon looked like maybe she was supposed to be a druid or something. Yeah,
0: she's identified as an yeah. abbess. So I assume she's meant to be a clerical type person. She's meant to be like a religious yeah. thing, yeah. But she has a lot of makeup on where you're like, is this racist?
3: Yeah it was uncomfortable. Yeah.
0: I think but Yeah.
1: When uh when I was <laughs> watching this I uh I did turn to uh to the person I was watching this with and I was like do you think Kelly would crochet one of these hooded shawl things for me? <laughs> and and he went, I just watched this movie. Let's keep. Let's try and finish this,
0: <laughs> please. Yeah, I think the co- I like the costuming and the makeup. I think is like it's well done, but you're forced to say to yourself, Are they trying to be a specific race? What is going on here? Like. And once you get into that territory, you're not really in the film anymore. You're just like, I, what, what are these actors doing? What is this director doing? Like, and it just completely. You end up feeling like they, whatever they're aiming for, they kind of missed a bit. But yeah, so I, you know, I, th- I, I mean, I feel like we're kind of getting to the point where we need to kind of pass a judgment on the whole film. And I don't want to tip my hand. We'll start with Kelly. (laughs) We'll say, you know, T-Hanks or no T-Hanks, just a Cloud Atlas. Like, if someone was like, I've got a few hours off tomorrow. Do you think I should sit down and watch, you know, Cloud Atlas? I've heard stuff about it. You know, would you say yes or no to that proposition? You know, if someone's, they're feeling like maybe they've got to catch up on, like, the Wachowskis. Or they've just watched Run Lola Run and they're like, I'm interested in what this director did after this. You know, would you recommend this to other people is really the question you know with a tea hangs or a no t hangs Kelly follow up so, do I hate this person <laughs> 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 i'll leave you I'll leave you to judge that you just make the make the assessment as you will, but we'll start with Kelly and we'll go to you, Leandra, in a second okay
3: uh, well
2: I can't believe you're leaving me in suspense on um, as to your opinion darren, but uh. Uh, Alright, so it's obviously going to be a no-T-Hanks for me, but I think probably one of the most frustrating things for me about this movie was that I could see a good movie, or like we said, or, uh, ideally a miniseries, that did not happen. <laughs> um, I didn't hate it as much as I thought I would... I thought a lot of the themes were intriguing. Uh, I thought the execution in a lot of ways... And it's like a very well-made movie. Like, it's aesthetically pleasing. It's a lot easier to follow than it should be. Uh, It grabbed me... The opening sequence grabbed me, which I didn't expect it to. I went in with a very negative attitude because I'm just a hateful person.
1: It's true. Uh,
2: And and I I have to say... I, I. did not. It was not as bad as I expected, but it was still not. I mean, it was not a good movie. And it. I mean, three hours. There's. I mean, honestly, besides the Godfather movies, I don't know if there's ever been a movie that I thought deserved to be that long that I've seen.
0: I see shortcuts, and shortcuts is three hours, and it's worth those three hours. I haven't seen
2: yeah. that, so I can't yeah. speak to that. And that's that's another
0: big but, like ensemble thing with a lot of cross-cutting stories and stuff. So.
2: But also, I mean, like. Well, I, you know what, I take it back, there's some uh, some old musical movies, too, are three hours, because they're based on musicals that are three hours, or, like, The Sound of Music is that long, definitely deserves it. But those movies all have the and, and The Godfather, even, in a way, they're built-in intermissions, like, you're not necessarily supposed to just sit there
0: for three hours it's really tough for me uh true true story i saw the godfather three weeks ago at the cinema when it was re-released for the 60th 50th anniversary i don't know know which anniversary Mm. we're hitting Uh, 72 so yeah 50th anniversary um and there were a lot of people who seemed to feel like they needed to go to the toilet just as we got to al pacino's adventures in italy
2: that well i mean that's the clue like (laughs) So intermission in the movie, it's like it's the big breaking point in the plot, you know. After the scene with the in the Italian restaurant, they have a big like musical interlude where there's not a ton happening on screen. It's like perfect.
0: Yeah. This doesn't have that. It's constantly cutting backwards and forwards. So then Leandro, I mean, are you recommending this to this person that you hate or love? I mean, you've got to make a choice. I mean, on the recommendation and whether or not you hate or love this person.
1: I would not, for any person. Recommend that they spend their time watching this.
0: <laughs> Not even for the I, you know the, the 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 enjoyable. I mean, I would say at least like the San Francisco stuff, the 2012 stuff, the the stuff with Frobisher. At least half the film is enjoyable.
1: I I thoroughly enjoy things that aren't fully good, but. I think that even the things in this that are good they're not the best or even a good uh, a great iteration of that thing so if I'm saying watch this but only watch it for this thing I I feel like I could give better examples of what to watch and if I wanted somebody to suffer through a film it would be mr. wrong which (laughs) Um, Ellen DeGeneres plays a straight woman in uh in love with God, what is his name? Yeah, that Holman. was Phil Coleman. That was
0: her big push at being a romantic lead. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. I I forced so yeah, many people to watch this. Out for her. Yeah.
0: yeah, I rem I like I rem I think I remember like the when that was coming out, because like, she was like going around talk shows everywhere, like promoting it and I was like something doesn't feel completely right about this film. Something's
1: It's not good. Yeah. But I still make people uh. watch it. It also it was trying
2: to be like a dark comedy but it didn't fully sell that, so it just it seemed like it was trying to be sincere at points when he like breaks his finger at the table to prove that he's so in love with her and you're like, Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah, I
0: and so, I mean I watched like I think I literally watched every single episode of her sitcom what was it called? I probably just did. Ellen. Too. The, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did. First, I I, I had
2: two moms growing up, so I assure you all uh, all our own
1: content was was consumed in that
3: home. Yeah. Own. So she, I, yeah, she's pretty good. I still really routinely
0: good.
1: say nothing is sadder than a lesbian clown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, uh, who was who was like who was her love interest for like the first three yeah, seasons I of that Miranda. Um Oh God. Who was like affected? Was it Jeremy Piven? Was like the the, like the was, oh, he wasn't in the first season, but he was in the second season to like the fourth season, and he was meant to be like her love interest for the first couple of seasons, and then <laughs> they just gave up on that. Um, but yeah, so yeah, okay. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not hiding my my you know my opinion of this film. I just always go last on this thing. It's my podcast, so that's that's how things <laughs> work. Um, and I would probably say I don't know. I mean, extremely loud, incredibly close. Larry Crown were the last two films I watched, and this is better than them. But yeah, in, well, I mean, I didn't. I mean, I think you know, Larry Crown is like 80 minutes, like credits to credits. <laughs> so that's that's you know, you could watch that twice in the time it took for me to watch this. So um, yeah, no, I mean, it's got to be an O. T. Hanks. I mean, you know, if I didn't, I mean, I liked Great Book Howard, and I didn't recommend that, uh, and uh, you know, so if I'm not recommending Great Book Howard, there's no way Cloud Atlas skates by. I mean you know the, the stuff in career and the kind of future patois talk and uh, just it's just too much of the film you know uh the stuff the stuff at the big you know with the, the the guy being poisoned it doesn't really kind of go anywhere but at least jim sturgis is watchable and then the other half of the film i do enjoy um but again like each of the each of the i mean the like stuff is kind of tragic uh you know and kind of enjoyable just for the performance of, of ben wishaw uh but then you know the the stuff in 1973 kind of comes to a quick end uh and the same with like even like i mean the fight in the pub is funny but then it's just like oh and then i uh, you know i jim broadbent got back together with susan sarandon uh, no i don't see that happening am <laughs> sorry i mean jim, jim broadbent <laughs> is you know is a good enough guy and he's a great actor uh in no world is he in the same league as Susan Sarandon. <laughs> Just not. No. Sorry. Not happening. No. You know, like. I mean, isn't he rich in this
2: storyline? Who? Sorry, what? He's rich, though, in that yeah, storyline. No, he's right?
0: poor. He's he's got debts. Yeah, oh, he's got okay. no money. That's why the uh. that's why that's why he, t- Tom Hanks' friends are coming to beat him up because he's got no money. So yeah, so he's not even rich. I mean, I guess maybe he could become rich because he's a publisher, and obviously, if books sell, then they can make money. But. Uh, he, to me he just seems kind of mostly middle class he's you know he has he looks like he hasn't even really got like a, a i mean saying that he's got property in london these days he could probably sell that for a couple of million but still i think susan sarandon would look past she seems to have a nice enough house herself doesn't she why she doesn't need him for the she looks like she's got a good enough gaff. so why would she why would she need him not for that so yeah no i don't think yeah i mean well
2: uh, to that well, I mean, I felt the same way about him getting together with Ben Wishaw. I was like, what
1: are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy talk right there. Yeah.
2: yeah, It's kind of weird
0: because obviously, you know, when I, when I said to various people, I'm doing this podcast, uh, I kind of strong-armed both of you into being on this episode. So I don't know how you feel about that now. Like Almost a year ago when I, you know, I was like, oh, you might find this interesting. You know, like there was some discussion online and I was like, oh, you know, maybe if the two of you watch it, maybe you'll enjoy it. Uh, so I don't know so, how, how you feel about that now, like a year on from being volunteered into this. Well,
2: well, I mean, I will say, as far as the listeners know, the last movie I watched was Polar Express, and I would gladly watch an hour and a half of this over an hour and a half of the <laughs> Polar Express. But I would still take the Polar Express because, I mean, my time isn't worth much, but it's worth more than
1: that. Um, you yeah. know. So I just messaged Kelly with um whether or not I should tell the truth about um <laughs> what oh, why I said yes to Cloud Atlas but she hasn't responded so I will just uh, I, I, I will also don't remember so I'll be honest um inexplicably when when you typed out Cloud Atlas as a thing that we should watch my brain deleted that and had it as sky captain in the world of tomorrow and my reaction was tom hanks is in that okay so then later on when uh when i was like yeah i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna be on this tom hanks thing and we're gonna be doing sky captain in the world tomorrow um it was my my friend oscar was like i don't think tom hanks is in sky captain in the world of tomorrow and i was like what no and then I re- read back and was like, no, it's Cloud Atlas. And Oscar went, oh no. <laughs> well, take a nap beforehand.
3: Uh, I should, um,
0: so. I, I was gonna say, I should say there's at least one guest who's been on uh, on this uh, podcast who signed up for, um, I think they signed up for Bonfire of Vanities, and they didn't, re- they thought it was another film, uh, so they did the same thing as you. They they were like, oh yeah, I'll watch that film, and then they realized oh, no, that's that's not Bonfire of the Vanities. I was thinking of something completely different. Um, yeah. So, you know. And
1: it was, it was my own fault for going like, oh, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> and I can't read. Illiteracy is a problem in America, you see. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, this other person was Australian as well, so, yeah, maybe it's just a thing uh, with anybody who's not British, they don't understand what I'm typing. Um, but either way... The accent. Yeah, that's it. I mean... <laughs> I'm hoping you've been able to understand me for most of this podcast. Uh, yeah, it's
1: only when you type.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, true, true. Uh, yes, that is, it is indeed the true, true. And I think the last thing we need to do before we go, first of all, uh, is there anything that you wish to plug? I know there definitely is, before we say goodbye.
3: Uh, either um, of you can... Yeah. I think
0: it's going to be the same thing you both... I mean, you can alternate words if you wish to... <laughs> no,
3: Irina,
1: let's try and speak completely in unison. <laughs> We do that every single episode of our podcast, and it goes super well. Um, Our podcast? Why, Andrew? Yeah, we have have a podcast. (laughs) Not just in theory, in practice. Yeah. Um, It is Rocky Horror Minute. We uh, we talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show in excruciating detail one minute at a time. You can find out more about that at... RockyHorrorMinute.com.
2: We're on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube as Rocky Horror Minute. We're on Twitter as... Rocky Horror Min, because it was too long as a
0: Twitter handle. Which is a problem that I had, um, uh, because the Twitter handle yeah. for this is T underscore FT Memory. Um, so, yeah. Uh, thanks to both of you for being my guests here today on this podcast that you thought was going to be about a completely different film.
1: Yeah, it, it was fun. Uh, this was this was enjoyable for a very... Very different
0: reasons. Um, And so I think in this film, uh, Jim Broadbent plays a captain of a ship, but in the next episode, we're going to be talking about a different captain, and that will be Captain Phillips.